This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to In Class with Carr, Dr. Gray Carr, episode 83. We are here. We're 83, Professor Hunter. Together, <sighs> how are you feeling? I'm feeling great. There's so many milestones. Um, uh, this this week on October 6th, I celebrated my seventh anniversary on Sirius XM Urban View. Happy anniversary, my dear. Ray Goodman and Brown. <laughs> oh, that was a big show. I saw some stirring on social media and folks were sending congratulations. How does it feel? It, well, we're here. So it, this this is a culmination. I had a seven-year plan because that's the number of completion. Those of you who are into the, those things, you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And when I came into that space um, with not too many people understanding my vision, which was good, it's okay. Sometimes it's great when people don't understand your vision. They can't get in the way of it. Right. But I said, I want to create the world that I want to live in. And mm -hmm. one person at a time, however long it takes. But I knew over a seven-year period, if I consistently produced content, commentary, enlightenment information that uh folk could hear it would hear it and they would come to it and and i believe in us like we don't just want junk and reality tv and you know clapbacks and edges snatch we some of us want a foundation mm -hmm. of of education that will propel us into our futures and we want to do it That's right. together because it's so much right. easier together yeah. and right. you know it's the, the world i imagine and now here we are in nubia Hi, Nubians. Hey, and Nubians. We didn't plan this. Y'all think we planned it, but we didn't. We I did just, not. I, I live in hoodies, but so I just put on the hoodie journal and popped in. Oh, look. I okay. did. I did. I got, I, got about, I got about 15 of these shirts now, and I'm going to wear them like it's a uniform because I'm repping my, my color. Uniform, oh, yeah. So and and none of us would want that stuff anyway if we weren't fed a constant diet of it. So we're, feed, we're feeding a constant diet, and you've been doing it now seven years. The global majority, seven years, Karen's rebels, seven years of clean glasses of water. And yeah. and the results are in the people who are listening and sharing and commenting and joining and having a conversation and now branching into this space that is completely liberated territory, to use Haile Grima's uh, phrase in this context. I mean, congratulations certainly are in order and also thank you and gratitude because this is the work that our ancestors are smiling on. I mean, one shirt I don't wear and I'm, I understand the impulse behind it, but you know, uh, when people had these shirts on to say, I am my ancestors wildest dreams, but of course we know that I is a problem. Um, but that's not, <laughs> you really think this is what your ancestors were dreaming of? I think first of all, that first generation was dreaming of going home. The second generation was dreaming of going where the elders told them they came from. And from then on, they were dreaming of not having to work like this and going to where they could be human in the world. And so perhaps not their wildest dreams, but this is definitely part of the dreams of our ancestors. So thank you for for bringing me in, recruiting me into this. I was going to say thank you uh, for not leaving me on this island by myself. You know, oh. thank everybody who's in here for you know, hearing the movement in your spirit and coming and bringing other people with you. Because again, this doesn't happen just because one person has a vision. You know, We're gonna talk today about Fannie Lou Hamer and she was born on my anniversary uh, 104 years ago. Uh, yeah. we, share, we share a birthday. 
Um, That's I, right. I I'm like, you know, <laughs> one person, you know, can have a vision, but it takes uh, more than a village. It takes all of us to oh. recognize what our part is. And I keep talking about the brick people are bringing, you know, got a bunch of bricklayers in here who know how to build some things. So right. I'm just grateful uh, that mm. what I thought about us was true. That we, Absolutely. we are, we are no, magnificent. It is. It is true. And, and just so you know, affirming, as we say, I mean, Mrs. Hamer alone, brilliant. I mean, but like you say, so much has happened since last week. And oh. and now we've added another element to the the Nubia chats and, and groups and narrative that are coming together. And so, you know, I guess um, Monday is a talk, Tuesday. Yeah, can we talk about your office hours for a second? Well, that, I was going to say, yeah. We did our first, you did your first office hour on no, Monday. We, we, we were there together, international. I, I facilitate, a shout out to Jackie who came in from South Africa at 2.40 yeah, in the morning. Stayed up like, early. No question. I was like, it's 2.40 in the morning and she's in here um, with us. It was amazing. It really was. So, and the family's office hours. in Texas, our young sister who was in law school oh, out there, OU. And with her family. With her, her mother and father. Yeah. Mother and father sitting there. The brothers and sisters, I mean, everybody, I mean, the shy town folk, the folk who came in from all over and it was international. And this this Monday is uh, Indigenous Peoples Day. And so um, we're going to have, a, I think I was just thinking about that. I was actually in class talking to and I, you know, children's books are. Let me reach over here because I hadn't planned on doing I was pulling some other stuff. And this is a children's book, actually, by Charles C. Mann called Before Columbus, the Americas of 1491. It's based on man's book, 1491, which talks about um, what this hemisphere, what the Western hemisphere, not this hemisphere, we're international, but what the Western hemisphere looked like perhaps in uh, 1491 and when Columbus came. It's just a kind of a little bit of a representative map. Anyway, it's a much longer book called 1491 where he goes into that. And on Monday... I think it, obviously it'll be a good time to have uh, our office hours in Nubia just to kind of not even get into great detail, but to maybe start with a few thoughts about that. And the difference between office hours and what we do, what we do here is primarily that like office hours, um, if we were sitting around in your office or my office, if you were at Hunter, I were at Howard and students just kind of come by or people just kind of come by. In both our cases, it isn't just folks who are enrolled in our classes. It's often people who are just like, you know, and you kind of have a, a regular office hours, five days a week after, as you're going through what you're going to talk about for the day. And then people just come in and we talk about whatever folk want to talk about. And we have a conversation. And just like Monday, I mean, it was so powerful. I mean, I didn't expect and we didn't expect Jackie Cole to. To, to come in from South Africa, but we got a thumbnail sketch of what's going on there. And we certainly can't trust commercial news entertainment media, the same companies that are producing the reality shows once they realize that they could lower their overhead to nearly nothing by just simply getting people to come out and cut the fool in front of a camera and sell the advertising dollars at even more. Uh, but, and we have so few black owned sites, uh, black owned platforms, Although there's been the explosion, of course, with the explosion of social media and, you know, the, the ground that you hold through Sirius and then have built out this independent space 
is certainly something to have to treasure and defend. Uh, we talked about last week what happened in the case of, of, of the Oxy Mirage and uh, the fact that you can dump millions of dollars into trying to all of a sudden curate eyeballs and it doesn't necessarily work. And of course, you know, I do Thursday nights regularly with, with Roland Martin and his Black Star Network. And you see what it looks like when you're trying to be one person and then five or 10 or 15 people and trying to enter into a space where there's static all the time. So we have so few of those black spaces that we should support. And we have to uh, not only cultivate these spaces and support these spaces, but with in that office hours conversation, it's very interesting. Because that first one we did, and, and I expect this will be the case every time we do it, you know, people are doing, they're bringing themselves and we're informing each other. And what we realize is we can, we, we do better when we're listening to each other than we do when we're listening to something that's been curated for other objectives. And Ms. Hamer's life is an example of that. So, so you think about Fannie Lou Hamer home on Wednesday. I was. Uh, hold on. I'm just trying to figure out why we aren't in Nubia, but uh, we'll deal with that uh, in a minute. Um, I was thinking about Fannie Lou Hamer because, you know, we we know her for being sick and tired of being sick and tired. And we know her for, you know, those speeches she she gave at the convention and, and for her being, you know, for her getting her behind whooped and, uh, you know, jailed and, and violated in unthinkable ways and yet still right. fighting fighting for uh, everyone. We think about her being the youngest of 20 children and having her family have to, you know, share crop because they were doing so well. And she talks about, you know, white folk don't like it when we do too well and they poison her you know, her parents' livestock and poison, oh you know, you know, so you think about somebody that saw all of this and still got up every day to fight um, despite not not being able to go to school the way she wanted to, smart as a whip, but you smart. know had to pick cotton, and That's could right. pick two hundred to three hundred pounds, you know, Come of on. cotton a day. You know, you think about because that. a bale is five hundred pounds. So when you hear that little song, jump down, turn around, pick a bale of cotton, ain't no such thing as jumping down, turning around, picking five hundred pounds of cotton, y'all. And for the fact that Miss Hamer, who what I think was she six when she first hit the cotton fields, to do that. I mean, to pick hundreds of pounds of cotton a day, a day. And of course, cotton, this is uh, before the machines. So, you know, any of you all ever seen cotton and, you know, you understand when you see cotton, it might look pretty from a distance. But when you get up on it and get in it, you know, my 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 father, my mother's father was a farmer. My father's father was a farmer. And anytime, in fact, we were going to my father's. Uh, sister, my auntie's um, funeral in Virginia, and I had my niece with me, Jamoke Yasantiwa, and we were passing a cotton field in Virginia, and I said, hold on. So we stopped. I said, come on. Where are we going? We're going to go walk out in this field, because you ain't never done that, but I don't want you to close your eyes in life and never say that you, stood in a, you didn't stay in the cotton field. I'm going to give you something that they gave us. <laughs> you out there, and you understand them sharp-ass leaves and all that other stuff. And so Miss Hamer and them doing, it's not like you just going down rows, picking cotton balls, put them in a bag, crunk a sack or a bag. No. You, you're you raking the grass. In fact, she talks about sometimes you might go over that same patch four or five times. So from sun up to sundown, you just going through the rows, raking out grass, cleaning stuff. Somebody's behind you picking cotton as you can get it. You call it cleaning the cotton. You cleaning the cotton. Back... You talk about drudge, not even drudgery. It's not drudgery. That's that's why I don't refer to plantations as plantations. 
plantations is a nice word. That's a nice social structure word. In fact, it's a nice movement and memory word for a social structure. Maybe we should think of them as labor camps. And for most people, death camps, because you were born, lived, and died on those camps doing that backbreaking work. And each crop has its own backbreaking. Cotton, terrible. Land leaching takes the nutrients out of the soil. That's why you got to keep getting land and moving land around clearing land because cotton takes everything out. That's what makes the cotton fibers. But if you're in South Carolina, you might be in a rice field. The average age of an African who was taken from Africa working in a rice field in South Carolina might be between seven and eight years of live of life. The boats had to keep coming because they were literally wearing those Africans out in that soggy water, making that rice. So, you know, shout out to all the people in, uh, and their descendants who profited from that. Uh, bless you, because in the spirit of Fannie Lou Hamer and one of her friends, in fact, a person that she calls her, her one of her very best friends, Malcolm X, we coming. It's, there will be, there will be no forgiveness for this anyway. So yeah, cotton, 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 cotton. <laughs> That's a hundred cotton. So anyway, so go ahead, say, say, say some more about Fannie Lou Hamer though, because like you said, people don't realize that uh, many of the things that you said just in, the, in, that, in that minute, are not things that come to mind when we think of Miss Hamer. The fact that she was smart as a whip and great, great at math. Uh, they handed the books over to her as a How young person. Right? Yeah. How about that? She was out there backbreaking. That's right. And, and then she said, "Well, you know what? I don't. Y'all not count. Y'all not weighing these people cotton right. I'm gonna bring my own stuff over here." <laughs> and then, and she got a little extra for being the person who supervised. Mind you, they still on a plantation, on a labor camp. They call it sharecropping. But she was so good at math and learned how to read very early, but couldn't go to school past sixth grade. Yeah, I mean, and and those of us in here um, who are talking about a hard life, and some people hmm. do have a hard life. Oh, no question. And I, don't, you know, this is not an oppression Olympics, but you know, mm -hmm. we owe we owe it to people who did that to a not give up, you know. She, uh, you sent me a couple of uh, audio uh, today, and I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play some of it. Um, uh, play some of it throughout this this uh, class today, you know. But she's talking about Schwerner and Goodman and and Cheney. She's out there, you know, and the same cops that were responsible for their death are the same cops policing the memorial. Same that? people, you know. And she's talking about, you know, sound like uh today. Shout out to the Minneapolis police. I was going to say Jacob Blake. Yeah. 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 No, in Kenosha. Yeah. I mean, the the, the video where they uh, were caught on tape uh, uh, cheering each other on as they hunted. And they said they were hunting protesters in the wake of the, of the George Floyd protests. They were on tape. And the only reason we have the tape, the only reason we have the tape is because they tried to hang uh, this brother, this young brother. Oh, I forgot his name. Um, he was out there um, protesting, and these and these these hunters were hunting from an unmarked van, and some of the other protesters like watch that van over there. Somebody's shooting out of it. So the brother pulled his strap out to fire back, and they tried to uh, convict him on assaulting and attempted murder of police officers because they're hunting from the unmarked van. He was acquitted of all charges. Was let you know they couldn't even pretend to hang the evidence on him. But the only reason we had this video that came out this week of these cops these white cops shooting at protesters in the streets of minneapolis saying we're hunting it feels good to change things we're hunting the only reason we have it is because during 
the, uh, the, the, the phase of his trial before he was acquitted, this was released as part of discovery. I mean, it would take, it would take Angie Porter to walk us through the, the details in greater detail, but the bottom line is this. They said they were hunting. And so when you bring up those, these are the same white boys. This is the so-called Mississippi burning case. United States versus Price. Cecil, uh, Deputy Price, you, you arrest Andrew Goodman, you arrest Michael Schwerner, you arrest James Cheney, the brother, you put them in the jail, they are going to investigate a fire. Ms. Hamer talks about the fact they was burning churches, burning where they thought freedom schools were being held. They had scared the hell out of so many people that even the black superintendents of the segregated Negro schools, when people would send books to the freedom schools in Mississippi and they had duplicate copies or more books than they could house in the freedom house, they would try to give the books to the some of the segregated schools and the black principals would say, we don't want those books. Why? Because these books came from y'all. And if they know that, the, that y'all came, I mean, but anyway, they go out to investigate a, 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 a buyer. And next thing you know, they have been locked up, released by the deputy, followed by the rest of the police and the damn clan and the rest of these white boys. And mind you, as Fannie Lou Hamer once said, every white man in Mississippi with a pair of khakis that he can manage to keep hold up on his behind is a potential deputy law enforcement officer. Oh, shout out to Texas, shovel mouth Greg Abbott with your uh, anti-choice legislation, which basically deputized everybody in Texas to try to stop abortions if you see it. But at any rate, um, the fact that, as you said, Ms. Hamer is like the very same people. Because y'all remember that, remember uh, uh, Prof when um, Martin Luther King, who uh, they used to tell the story, and then Ralph Abernathy then would tell it. They were in Philadelphia, Mississippi, I think it was Philadelphia and he was praying. They were all in a, down on the ground on the knee and they closed their eyes. Now some people was looking around, but they closed their eyes and Dr. King said, Lord, you know, the, the very killers of Schwerner Goodman and Cheney might be around us at this very minute. And they said, they heard one of the white boys behind them say, yeah, they right behind you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They right behind you. Ain't no such thing as American nation. Not until you make it one. And that was Miss Hamer's point. The whole time. In fact, there are two new books on Fannie Lou Hamer. One is Keisha Blaine's book, Until I Am Free, uh, a phrase Miss Hamer used often. And we'll look at one of her speeches that that's really the book I want to focus on. I mean, these new books, uh, Catherine Clifford's book is interesting. Walk with me, a biography of Fannie Lou Hamer. Both those books, uh, Blaine's book and Clifford's book are very well written and build on the work of, of, re of more, re uh, more uh, older scholars. Uh, but it's always good to to, to listen with uh, with Miss Hamer. In fact, uh, Clifford's book "Walk with Me" takes its title from you know that spiritual. Um, All along my pilgrim journey, I want Jesus to walk with me. That was the song that Miss Hamer somehow, through swollen lips a shut eye that would eventually be damaged, got damaged for the rest of her life as a result. Uh, uh, her behind, according to the account of the sisters who were there with her in prison, was so hard as a result of the beating she received in Columbia, uh, in Winona prison, Columbia, South Columbia, Miss, uh, Mississippi, in 1963, that it felt like a callus to them as they were trying to comfort her after the, after the, uh, the white jailers had two black men beat her in tandem until they got tired. Two black inmates. Uh, she said that was the song that Miss Hamer, some kind of way, laying on her stomach because they tried to comfort her 
because they thought she was going to die in that jail. That was the song, Walk With Me, that she was managed some kind of way to get out from between her lips for them to hear her singing with her, with, with all that she had to sing. Uh, not this little light of mine. So, <laughs> no, walk with me. In other words, I'm going to need somebody else in here. Some of y'all Old Testament Christian know about that story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They tried to burn them up in the fiery furnace, and they said, I threw three in there, and then I opened up to see if they was burnt up, and it was four in there. One looked like the son of God. I said, yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, Miss Hammer said, I'm not in this jail by myself, and it ain't just y'all in here with me who I can see. I, I'm going to need something else to get through there, and she did get through there, but to what you just raised. Those people, the federal government you know, convicted Price and them of uh, uh, Supreme Court uh, convicted them of violating the civil rights of Schroeder, Goodman, and Cheney. But those guys were, and for a lot of people, are heroes. They're still heroes. Not Schroeder, Goodman, and Cheney. They're killers. Their killers are still heroes. You know, so it's Hamer. Ah. <sighs> <sighs> So here we are. Here we are. Beautifully, though. We're here. We're here. We're here. Um, and, and as I work out um, the the issues with Nubia, I know Nubians be be patient. We're going to get back over there in a second. Um, as I uh, apparently must have done something wrong. But, that you know, why do I want to do all of the things? No, that's right. Well, no, we the team is building slowly, but you ain't got to do everything. No, no, I don't. I don't. I should have no, done it. No, another I, lesson we can draw family yeah. member. We'll talk about her freedom farms too. And oh, what, and what yeah, please do. And and this space is for building uh knowledge. You know, this is where we remember who we are, who we yeah. were through the people, uh, through the people, places, through the through the um the history. This is how we build back, you know, who we were and who we are and who we're gonna be. Um, Nubia office hours is where we build, you know, is where right. we're going to talk about, you know, the, the, the stories of the day you're going to, you know, you know, enlighten us about the debt ceiling and, you know, other things that are happening in pop culture. That's Nubia. This is where we build. This is where we get the foundational knowledge. So, yeah, um, yeah. all right. So, yeah. And it's more like, like you say, we're in, the, we, we're in, the, we're in the kitchen in Nubia. That's how I thought about it. You know, if I'm sitting there, usually sitting in the office, I'm reading or thinking about something in the context of, yeah, the in the class it's like, and you'll see, we'll see this when we debut the African American Studies class in, in narrative. You know, it's very systematic. So we'll go through time and space. We'll you apply that African States framework and just kind of come through the years, so that people can kind of enter and leave that space with a kind of framework and foundation. But office hours, um, and some of that is here in in class. But office hours is. You know, I just read this and I was thinking about this and uh, what you reading? Uh, let's talk about this. And what do you think? And then we we we're building. Right. We're cooking. We're in the kitchen. So tell us what we need to know today about. Ms. Well, well, I mean, I think you, you, Books. you know, when, when we were talking about it. Um, and by the way, I, I only mentioned uh, Keisha Blaine's book until I am free, uh, which came out this week. And Catherine Clifford's book, Walk With Me. Because they're the two most recent books, but um, and this certainly is indicative of what a lot of academic books do, and kind of quasi-academic books do. Um, in Professor Blaine's case, the book is a Beacon Press out of Boston, kind of a progressive press out of the social structure. Um, 
it's it's a book that attempts to contemporize Mrs. Hamer by using her life and some of the things that she said and did to kind of as a lens through through which to read contemporary social movements, movements for social justice. Um, and it does it does a solid job of taking Mrs. Hamer's ideas and trying to um, her ideas and her work and, and trying to 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 filter them. Uh, use them as a lens through which to think about uh, contemporary society. Um, Clifford's book uh, does something similar, but not as much. While Blaine's book is kind of, you know, we know what you know what might Mrs. Hamer have to teach us about how to approach Black Lives Matter, or to think about the killing of Black women, or or internationalism. These kind of things. Uh, Clifford's book is a lot more kind of uh, it, it's um. Oxford University Press. It's more kind of traditional academic book in that sense. And typically these these more recent books on any subject that has been written about a lot. And Ms. Hamer herself in an interview she gave, I think it was 1965, Ms. Hamer talks about, no, no, that's not true. It's not 165. It was later. Uh, of course, she didn't make it out of her 60s between the diabetes, the high blood pressure. I mean, the cancer eventually, you know, Ms. Hamer made transition at the age of 59. And near the end of her life, she was virtually helpless. She was in need of, of assistance all the time. And by then, she and her husband, Pap Hamer, were raising uh, their two grandchildren because one of their daughters, they adopted daughters, because remember, Ms. Hamer also had a hysterectomy. Uh, the doctor um, assaulted her. She went in for, to, for a tumor and came out with her reproductive system gone. Um, uh, you know, she wasn't an outlier either. This happened to a lot of black women, but um, this, this that, that would be called forced sterilization, right? Sterilization, absolutely. Thank you, thank you. That's right. That's not that's not that's not sugar coated. It's exactly that's exactly right, Professor. That's exactly right. And 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 one and the most extreme form, or on the extreme end of the spectrum, there are other forms of state sanctioned sports sterilization that are ostensibly reversible like Depo-Provera. I think that's the drug uh, that in the South um, courts and law enforcement officials were requiring women to get as a condition uh, that was handed down by the court after a conviction. You know, you're not going to reproduce. And what? I mean, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. But Ms. Hamer, this interview would have been around 1973, two or three. So about five years before she made transition. And she mentioned in the course of the interview that there were a couple of people who were working on biographies of her, one for children. And I have it around here somewhere. I, it was impossible for me to find it. Let me stack up. Um, June Jordan, the poet, actually did a, a children's book on, on Ms. Hamer. And Ms. Hamer says in an interview, because the interviewer asks her, you know, are you worried about accuracy? And she said, well, unless you're taking it word for word, um, you're probably going to miss something that I said or something anybody said. And this was from June Jordan, of course, the sister, brilliant sister, essayist, poet, cultural worker, uh, defender of culture. Very important uh, black woman in the history of black letters in the 20th century june jordan also now an ancestor uh so it wasn't even the other biographers 
Um, and then she also mentioned another sister uh, who's here in the D.C. area uh, was the first woman president of Howard University, albeit interim president. But she was there for over a year, uh, a member of the formation of students out of uh, Mississippi who joined with the uh, Council of Federated Organizations, which was primarily the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. That organization, uh, certainly um, another member of SNCC, very prominent member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who also lives here in D.C. Uh, uh, my friend, the great Dory Ladner, her sister Joyce, uh, Dr. Joyce Ladner, um, was working on a biography of, of Ms. Hamer uh, that didn't appear. But Ms. Hamer herself, before she made transition, mentioned those two black women. And the reason I said all that is because Keisha Blaine is a black woman. And I said her 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 biography is more of a kind of political. She's a historian, trained as a historian, but it's kind of a, an attempt to contemporize Ms. Hamer's thoughts and, and, and struggle. Uh, Clifford is a white woman who's written about Harriet Tubman, too. I think both of them, Blaine and Clifford, found out about Ms. Hamer in college. I think for uh, Blaine, it was undergrad, and in for Clifford, it was graduate school. But uh, the, the the biography that uh, Clifford draws on the most is a book by Kay Mills, who's another white woman. And I'm only mentioning race in this context to make a larger point generally about the question of how the social structure curates narratives about Black life, both uh, directly in terms of kind of a racial formation, but also indirectly in terms of how uh, academics particularly are cultivated to think about narrating the lives of our people, which is why we have to have an African states framework to separate the social structure from the governance structure. Uh, but the, the 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 previous biography she draws on the most, uh, Clifford, is Kay Mill's book, This Little Light of Mine, uh, Life of Fannie Lou Hamer. And there have been a number of books written about Fannie. In fact, there's a good children's book. My friends at, down at uh, the Zen Education uh, Group and Teacher for Change um, actually gave me a copy of this, uh, Voice of Freedom, Fannie Lou Hamer, Spirit of the Civil Rights Movement. You see it won the Caldecott Honor. Uh, Carol Boston Weatherford uh, did the, the narrative and Akua Holmes did the, uh, the, the photographs. Uh, it's a beautiful book. Um, and it's just, I mean, there's so much in it. I mean, we could just go, I mean, the illustrations are great and the, the, the writing is primarily it's it's poetry it's it's written it, it, it's laid out it, it's laid out in poetic form uh, there she is with her children so it's very important to understand they adopted dorothy jean and virgie reed in 1954 and 1961 is when they forced they had a forced sterilization and you talk about going in thinking one thing okay and then coming out coming out from under anesthesia what happened oh yeah we took out your uterus whoa wait a wait wait what the hell mm. wait what you did what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not like we operated on a human being again. <laughs> I was digging. Maybe we talk about it. <laughs> there it is. Sylvia Winter told y'all no humans involved. But the point is that um, as I was just laying out that field, it's interesting because, for example, in, in Blaine's book, she writes that um, Mrs. Hamer was, quote, ever committed to the idea that electoral politics and public service could help overturn decades of unjust laws and policies in the United States. Now you can read that and keep going, whoa, go back. <laughs> decades, decades of unjust laws and policies in the United States. See, the trick of the, the, trick of the social structure is, uh, 
and this again is a principle of critical race theory, is that it tries to normalize whiteness. In other words, the struggle is to fulfill the promise of America. Okay, what was the promise? Well, that all men were created equal, but feminists say all women, two people. Okay, all people are created. Okay, that's the promise. That wasn't the promise. That was what was written. But are, have you been paying attention? <laughs> yes, yes, of course. And then, of course, then the begrudging acknowledgement that the actions never match the rhetoric. And then the reserve, as Jacob Carruthers would call it in Science of in Oppression, his, his brilliant uh, meditation on how this works. He said, that's when it pulls out, the structure pulls out the reserve theory of progress. In other words, okay, okay. However, it's never happened rea in reality, but it's aspirational. In other words, I'm, what I'm not going to do is concede to you that this is a settler colony criminal enterprise. And so, in fact, let me bring in Ms. Hamer again, because Ms. Hamer wrote her own autobiography, a small piece. In fact, I read that Common is uh, talking about turning it into a movie. In fact, I guess he's, uh, and I hope he doesn't, because her biography isn't long. It's only a few pages. It's more of a pamphlet than anything. It's called The Praise Our Bridges. And in fact, the crack research team at Narrative uh, will uh, drop this, I'm sure, on social media as a link. Um, in fact, um, uh, there's a place, there's a, there's, a, um, there's a platform called SNCC Digital that has a lot of these documents, and y'all can look, at, look them up. And so I know that the... Uh, the uh we'll, we'll, we'll probably have it uh definitely uh by the end of the week oh no question uh, but i want to ask you a, a question before you go yes. on yes um, yes so uh, last night i uh, i watched um my name is paulie murray ah yes and i thank you for that uh because you know we could be connected you know because i'm at hunter she went to hunter but I never knew until you started talking about her. And one of the things that kept coming up was like, how is every right that we have in this country post enslavement mm -hmm. came out of that woman's brain? Come on now. But she was not a household name. But I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Surely you're exaggerating, Professor Hunter. Surely you must be exaggerating. No, really? I, every, and I, there's no Ruth Bader Ginsburg without Pauli Murray. There's no Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And did Spotswood give her her $20? With a bet that he lost. That is the question. That really isn't that the question. All right. No, I mean, but you know, see, see, their paths were not. However, when she was in D.C., when she was doing that stuff with the Kennedy administration, the Johnson administration, you know, Robinson had worked his way through the ranks, and of course, he eventually becomes a federal judge. I imagine they were in the same room a few times, and so yeah, I'm sure. Hey, bro, but she did not say he. She said he he told her that they used her paper that he said didn't make any sense yeah. to argue Brown versus Board of Ed. He told her that. Yeah. But, uh, and I'm only bringing it up not to derail the conversation, but mm -mm. the beauty of this documentary is that it is told mostly through this woman's voice, through her writings. Yes. Through, so I get to hear her talk about herself yes. and, and her her niece, her great niece and and the, the students. And, and it reminded me of you too, because yes. one of the two of the students they interviewed, they said they went to her place books floor to ceiling oh, oh no question i'm looking over your shoulder books floor to ceiling and they said you know oh. um professor professor murray have you read all these books she was like yeah and any book that i haven't read i don't put it on the shelf and i thought about you but i was like nah see and that's funny you say that because i'm looking around i just got a book the no. other day and i won't be able to find it but it's a it's a brand new book or east uh -oh, uh -oh. east african scholar i might have put it on that stack right there let me see an East African scholar who is writing about const comparative constitutional law. 
and um in Africa. It's it, it it's 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 a very new book. And I'm like, damn, I need to stop and read this. And that made me pull a book which they don't really get into in that documentary. Again, Polly Murray left so much. Well, are you talking about her her uh stay in Ghana? Yeah. And how they basically gathered her up out of there because she was telling people how to be free. Well, see, that's what they say. Okay. All right. So what see, the problem is that when you read, she trained helped train the first generation of lawyers. She and um and Ruben wrote this book, Leslie Rubin, Senior Lecturer of Law, University of Ghana, and Polly Murray, Senior Lecturer of Law, University of Ghana. You see? Oh, yes, that's the previous owner because you're not these used books yet to find. So the point is this. That documentary fills an important gap. And it's also not something that I would show my class without a preface, which is why we had that long conversation on Pauli Murray that y'all could see exclusively in narrative. Because um, I asked my law students about it. They went to a screening, but before they did, the week before they did, I said, let's talk about that. And I said, now, when y'all go watch this documentary, I want, you, I want you to answer a few questions about it. How much conversation do they have about Howard Law School? How much conversation do they have about colonialism and imperialism and anti-Black and anti African inter imperialism. I'm talking about the stuff that this lady, oh man, well, I won't be able to find her book. She did a, the one who just did this book. Uh, you interviewed her. Um, oh, I can't think of the name of the book now. Uh, what was it called? White. Oh, Rebecca. Um, yes, yeah, okay. You know, what I'm talking right. about like, and we we speaking in code right now because I ain't know what the hell you were talking about. No, 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 it'll be all right. I'm a good <laughs> I wasn't thinking about it and I've been reading it slow because you know school is here now and I have to go through all kind of other stuff and if I had it close oh here it is of course I'll pull it out over here it's over here white malice no no not Rebecca Susan Williams maybe and covert in Africa now she writes about Paulie Murray in here too but the whole thing is, you know, who's running who out and for what reasons? And why are you making this documentary? Because the same people who made My Name is Pauly Murray made RBG. Ah, okay. Sorry, so I only brought it up not to derail the conversation. No, we're not derailing. This is all perfect. Because but as, you're, as you're showing these books, you know, again, I watched that. But again, I had to clean glass of water over here. No so it, it was filling in so many blanks for me. Right. But for us, you know, how do we know? Because they're pushing these books on us. You know, they're bestsellers, New York Times. This person's won the Pulitzer. They won a Pulitzer. That's has a Nobel right. Prize and this and this and that. And we buy these books and we read them because they must be great because they got all of these titles and accolades. How do we know if the book on Fannie Lou Hamer is something that can actually nourish us or right. is it somebody's propaganda, even that children's book? So I just wanted to pop in and say, first of all, no, thank no. you. But that's the question. That's the question. No, thank you. No, that's the question. And that's why we had to have the African States framework. This isn't off topic at all. In fact, let's spend a second on it. For example, Page 187 of a 650-page book, White Malice. Remember, this book is White Malice, Susan Williams, The CIA and the Covert Recolonization of Africa. There's John Kennedy, y'all friend. All you Camelot lovers, shout out to uh, all the people who want in their heart to be extensions of British royalty. You know, you got a president and a first lady, but you want them really to be the king and the queen. So you make the king. You don't even know what JFK was doing in your continent of origin. And all y'all watching Bridgerton and 
cheering for Harry and his wife, whatever. The point is this. Um, page 187, Nkrumah, Kwame me the first prime minister, whose government is going to be attacked and undermined by the CIA in collusion with the British and everybody else. Because remember, these people are not, these are the same people that uh, that our sister, um, the prime minister of Barbados, Come on. got up and smoked. At uh, smoked at the UN. These 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 are their these are their predecessors. This is international capitalism, imperialism, white supremacy, and it's as recent as today's paper. But at any rate, oh, today's paper, which by the way mentions the uh, Tanzanian who does not write in in uh, in Kiswahili, who won the Nobel Prize, and once again, Ngugi Wathiango did not win the Nobel Prize. Which they send a message. We wanted an African. We'll even take one from East Africa. We even take one from next door to you. But you will never get a Nobel Prize from us in Googie. We'll give it to a guy that people are like, huh? What? Who? Right. They're making a point. But anyway, the whole point is this, because this is all this all ties together. Uh, on this page one ninety seven, she uh, eighty seven. Uh, Williams writes about the fact that Kwame Nkrumah, who we know the first Prime Minister of Ghana, didn't wasn't blameless, wasn't without mistakes. Brilliant political mind. Very interesting brother. Um, and this whole story, we had to do him separately, maybe in narrative. He says, Nkrumah was not without political, without powerful political enemies. His most notable opponent was J.B. Danqua, who had stood unsuccessfully as presidential candidate against him in April 1960. Danqua had taken a vigorous role in the struggle for independence from Britain and was widely respected as one of Ghana's founding fathers. That's right. J.B. Danqua was a lawyer. In fact, we talked about Danqua. Maybe we did when we were talking about Pauli Murray. So y'all had to go check that in narrative. We talked about him some time ago because J.B. Danqua. And yeah, I'm looking if I have is that one Dan Quas books. He did several. The Akan, um, JB Dan Quas probably most famous book. Maybe the uh, was Dan Quas did the Akan Doctrine of God, but he between he and J. E. Casey Hayford they wrote books like the Truth About the West African Land Question. Um, they wrote books on the Akan Constitution. In other words, they were looking at pre-colonial African legal formations. And uh, what Angie Porter, that's what that's what uh, Porter, uh, Professor Porter is working on over at Georgetown. She's doing a legal fellowship over and she's developing this concept called Africana legal theory. And she's looking at this through these lens of law through protocols. Very, very powerful kind of thing. And she's been reading this Dan Qua stuff, reading Dan Qua, reading um, Casey Hayford and others. These are the Jagnas for Kwame Nkrumah. But then politically, you begin to see them battling each other so much so that it becomes a problem. So going on says um, a lawyer of distinction, Danqua was the section chairman of the Europe-based International Commission of Jurists, which was revealed in 1967 to have received CIA funding through the American Fund for Free Jurists. Following the revelation, the ICJ successfully pulled away and established itself as an independent organization. Okay. Slightly more than 3,000 subscribers received ICJ publications in Africa in the early 1960s. Danqua developed a close association with Pauli Murray, a thin, intense African-American lawyer who arrived in Accra in February 1960 to serve as a faculty member in the newly established Ghana School of Law. She had been urged to take up the position by the trade unionist Maida Springer, who lived near her in Brooklyn and was a close friend. Through Springer, Murray had met the Kenyan leader, Tom Mboya. In 1956, she picked him up from the airport, taken to Springer's home. She also met with Julius Nereri and other African nationalist leaders. And then it goes on for several pages. The point is this, I'm gonna get too deep into this. Part 
of Murray, in fact, at the center of Murray's political problems in Africa was she was entering a field of African politics and political battles that she had no grounding for. And remember, even with us today, the farther we are from Africa, the better Africa looks and the more homogenous it looks. The closer you get to it, it's like the closer you get to Africans in the United States, the more the reality comes out. Mrs. Hamer found that out when she went to Guinea. We're going to talk about that because she said, I was mad. Bob Moses was mad. They took a whole bunch of uh, black folk from SNCC to Guinea in 1964 after so-called Freedom Summer. And I'm saying that to say that she, the reason that, that she said she was angry and that uh, Bob Moses and, and others were angry, James Foreman, uh, Julian Bond was on that trip. Harry Belafonte was one of the people who raised the money to send them. Go to Africa. One of the reasons she said she was so angry was she saw the literature the United States government was, was given out in Guinea and through extension, West Africa during this period of the early to mid-60s. And it showed Black people and white people sitting together at the lunch counter eating, saying, look at all the progress that's been made in America. Purebred propaganda. And Ms. Hamer's like, this is not what's going on over there. And the Africans, the Guinea, the, the Guinea uh, folks in Guinea were like, what, really? Oh, we thought we thought y'all were good. Social structure. What, what does that have to do with Polly Murray? What does that have to do with the film? What does that do with the idea that, you know, she was ejected? Listen. And many times in white documentary filmmaking, which I don't begrudge them that because it's their films. And trust me, this is another of their films. This social structures films. Black people are treated like a where's Waldo heroic individual tourist through the white narrative. So everything about them is personalized. It's this, this individual outlier. What you're not going to get a sense of is the governance structure. You're not going to get a sense of who we are to each other. So hidden figures is great. <laughs> so she just dropped out the sky doing math, and then the rest of the women just dropped out the sky doing math. No, they went to HBCUs, and they went to segregated schools. Well, we ain't going to talk about that, because we got to get to Kevin Costner crying down the men's room sign, uh, women's room sign, so she ain't got to run back and forth, because we got to get John Glenn to the moon. And these magical Negroes sprinkled along the narrative, we want to celebrate them. They're hidden. Are they hidden? Are they really hidden to their families? They are hidden from us now because you control our schools and our children don't learn what they would have known before. But the point I'm trying to make is that in the in the Polly Murray documentary, you see a similar kind of magical Negro exercise with a few sprinklings coming in. But what you won't get is the fact that a great deal of the political intrigue Polly Murray found herself in in West Africa is being exacerbated and in some cases fomented by the empire. But this documentary is not about white imperialism. This documentary isn't about, this documentary is about this, uh, this, this, um, this brilliant, iconoclastic, uh, weird, cool, troubled, tragic individual who will help us understand how great we are, ultimately, because, you know, RBG, uh, who borrowed from her, took the baton, was on the Supreme Court, National Organization of Women. Well, wait, what about imperialism in West Africa? And she was, I mean, and what about all those Pan-Africanists she met before she left the, uh, the United States? What about this Midas Springer person and all these people? And what about Tom Boya and, and uh, no, 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 Negroes. If you want to make a movie, you make a movie. Okay, I made a movie. Then you find out what Amazon Studios has been doing. 
Amazon Studios, which used to be a place people could upload stuff on their on the platform and put their documentaries out, slowly Amazon Studios began curating the documentaries they acquire, shutting down independent filmmakers and, and through their algorithms, moving down in the order those who will pop up. And if you look, the reason we can all see now after it made its run through the uh, indie film houses and the film festivals, the reason we can all now go on to something like Amazon Prime and see My Name is Polly Murray, because they chose that one and said, okay, this one you watch. Now, the challenge for us in the governance structure is to make our own, is to make our own Polly Murray documentary. And, and, and anyone making a, a documentary on Polly Murray should not only start with Polly Murray stuff, as we talked about, and I'm going to get more deeply into this, because uh, you can go look at the long conversation we had in narrative because a couple of hours on Polly Murray because we walked through many of those books or at least put them out for the conversation. Uh Song in a Weary Throat. I'm pointing because I got still got them all type uh packed up over there. Uh Patricia Bell Scott, the firebrand and the first lady. It's a lot of stuff. And again, we'll stop with Polly Murray. But the larger theme now ties to Mrs. Hamer is that who we are to each other. The governance question in our categories or African states categories and I'm gonna say more about that in a second just for a second because I want I have to keep bringing us into an awareness that we have to use these categories if we're going to do Africana studies because African studies isn't about the subject matter it isn't just about what we're studying it's about how we're studying it what is our framework what is our method what is our methodology what is the thinking going behind how we developed our method the question we have to always ask ourselves that second of the six categories, governance, is who are we to each other? And if you ask that question, even the story of Pauli Murray becomes a very different conversation. But what ends up happening is, in order to continue to maintain the hierarchy that we live in, in this world system, and its domestic variations, wherever we find ourselves, including here in the United States, for most of us in this right now, the trick is to try to obscure the distinction between the social structures we live in and who we are to each other. So Fannie Lou Hamer becomes a warrior for American democracy. Not a black woman out of Mississippi trying to figure out how to live and survive and will her and her people transform their condition. And as they transform their condition, have the impact of helping everyone. That's why Keisha Blaine takes the title of her book, Until I Am Free. Ms. Hamer said, until I'm free, no, you're not free. She talks about that in the context of a white man that came up to her quietly after she ran for state senate in Mississippi near the end of her life and said, I voted for you. And really? Yeah, and I'm mad that you lost. Really? Okay. Because Ms. Hamer thought that they stole that election when she ran for state senate. And in fact, before I go to the uh, to the framework, I should probably, um, we'll go through her life a little bit, just in quickly in terms of dates. Uh, she ran for Senate in the early 1970s. I want to say 1971. And, you know, she reiterated in the interview, she, the interview she gave in 72, 73, that it was two parts, 72 and 73. And I'm going to show y'all where y'all can go get this interview. Because again, it's one thing to have, and it's great to have scholars and academics do stuff and then kind of curate their own uh, interpretation. But the best thing we can always do if it's available is go to the words in, in the in, in the words of one of our great jegnas now an ancestor the great Ankh Mira, one of the students of Medu Nature uh, that we, we knew very well. Uh, Brother Ankh used to always say, and he he wrote a grammar, Egyptian grammar actually, uh, the first one written exclusively by an African American actually. Uh, the name of his book was what he used to always say: 
let the ancestors speak. And as Jacob Carruthers used to always say, African champions must break the chain that link African ideas to European ideas and listen and talk to their ancestors without interpreters. So Ms. Hamer says something, oh, here comes Clifford, or here comes Blaine. Well, what she means is, hold on, I've been black a long time. I've been around a whole lot of black people. I think I want to hear what she got to say, and then I'm going to talk to her in my own mind. We're going to have a couple. I don't need you interpreting for me, particularly when you come in and say, you know, this was something about American democracy. And, you know, uh, and uh, that that the attacks on American democracy uh, meant that Ms. Hamer and others had to come together because American democracy is even being threatened today. Hold on. Is it? Is it? What's what's threatening American democracy? Well, I mean, voter suppression. I'm sorry. Voter suppression been here since the beginning. So is the threat to American democracy trying to make sure everybody can vote? Wouldn't that be the threat to American democracy? Well, I see your point. No, no, no. Don't try to shorthand. I'm asking you, when you say American democracy, what do you mean? Oh, hold on. Let me go in my back pocket for that reserve theory. I don't mean it as it exists i mean it as we can aspire to oh, okay so you're talking about fantasy no problem as long as we're clear <laughs> so when you say that the threat to american democracy is voter suppression what you're saying is the threat to something that never existed is trying to build something that uh is trying to reinforce that thing huh what what do you mean see you see how confusing it gets when you won't do what Ms. Hamer said, which is just tell the truth. And this is where I was going with this whole piece that I was going to quote from you. It's only a 26 page book, her little book to praise our bridges. It's very, you know, it's kind of just her kind of a narrative that she wrote. And it's also got pictures in it, Julius Lester, Charlie Cobb. And like I said, we, we'll put it up in social media so y'all can get the link. Ms. Hamer says at the end of the book, she says, when she went to Guinea, we're going to come back to this. She says, I was treated much better in Africa than I was treated in America. I often get letters that say, this is what she says, people say to her, go back to Africa. Now I have just as much, if not more right to stay in America as whoever wrote those letters. That's what she said. But here's the here's the paragraph that she ends the, her little book with her memoir. I say her little book, because it's a very short book, but it's very powerful. Ms. Hamer says this. So when they say go back to Africa, I say, when you send the Polish back to Poland, the Italians back to Italy, the Irish back to Ireland, and you get on that Mayflower from whence you came and give the Indians their land back. What? Go back to Africa. No problem. You go back, you go back, you go back. All y'all go back. I'm going back. I love the place I came. We're going to talk about that in a minute. I love it. But I'm going to stay here and fight as long as it's a place to fight for, but if we all going back, everybody go back and get these people who were over here, they land back. See, that's messy. That doesn't fit. Now, she knows that's not going to happen. Why? People say, well, it's not going to happen because, you know, the future and it already happened. You can't do anything about it. I'm sure that's what the Native Americans thought before y'all came. As Sheikh Adjob said, nobody in Egypt would have ever thought that the society they built would be gone and that their descendants would be somehow subject to people who ain't had no culture. In fact, what Job says is, you know, black people thought they ruled their places and that the situation could never be reversed. Ain't nothing permanent but change. So 
Mrs. Hamer is working to build something that never existed before, but that don't mean that she is, in the words of Derrick Bell, making an involuntary sacrifice for American democracy. She's very clear about what democracy is. She and her friend Malcolm X are very clear about it. And in fact, she talks about Malcolm. But let, let, let's let's just go through her life right quick. And then um, this is maybe like a little five minute. Put me get my timer and put it on so that I don't go much longer about this because y'all can read about Miss Hamer and we've given you some good sources. But the one I'm going to talk primarily about, that one is her words. And we'll get to that in a second. So like I said, she was born in 1917. Uh, her parents, like her, you know, you're talking about people who sharecropped, people who, you know, who basically, her mother died in 1961. So uh, James and Ella, James and Ella Lou Townsend. Townsend was her pre-married name. Uh, Miss Hamer uh, was born in October, of course, as we said, the, the anniversary of the Karen Hunter show, the 10th of October, 1970. Six. The, six. six of October. The 10th, I'm sorry. Six. I'm sure. The 6th, not the 10th. The 10th month. Well, not the 10th month, October, because October means eight. But Julius and Augustus Caesar put their names in the calendar and just like everything else, messed it up. So now, Octo, nueve, decade, but like decimal. Now the tenth month is the twelfth month. So yes, the tenth month, October the sixth. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Professor. Nineteen seventeen, and so she, you know, grows up on that uh, on that farm. She does her first cotton work in her single digits, six years old. She's out there in the field. Uh, married Pap Singleton uh, Perry. I'm not Pap Singleton. I'm thinking Pap, like Pap Singleton, the immigrationist, went out to Oklahoma from Tennessee. Uh, Perry Hamer. So Fannie Lou Hamer and Perry Hamer got married in 1944. Uh, he, his ancestors came from North Carolina and far back, uh, but Mississippians. And like you said, uh, these uh, owners of land were constantly attacking them, even though they, on the uh, patch that they were in, uh, she had moved to Sunflower County when she was two years old. And Pap Singleton had, uh, Pap Singleton, Pap Hamer had worked on the the the, the labor camp um, share crop that they lived on for 22 years, no, 18 years, 18, for 18 years after they got married, he had worked on there on that on that land since before he knew her, before they knew each other, and uh, he survived her as well. As I said, he passed away at the age of 80, uh, 1981. But they worked together on that land. Um, as I said, they adopted two girls, um, um, Dorothy and Vergie, 1954, same year as Brown versus Board of Education, none of which, no, I think actually Hamer made transition in 1982. She passed in 77, he in 82. But they worked that land uh, and they didn't know about a lot that was going on beyond their community. Uh, some stuff in the state of Mississippi, some national news. But as Ms. Hamer often said in interviews, you know, if you wanted to know what was going on around the country, you know, there were people who had radios and said, but we see too damn tired to be sitting up listening to the news. So a lot of things you might think we talked about and knew about, we just didn't, which is crazy to think about. And here we are in 2021 with this information glut and this static, but you had people who were literally cut off 
who were cut off, which is one reason why this goes back, reaches back to when we were talking about the Chicago Defender, even when we were talking about the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and, and maids, when you talk about these trains coming through the South in the middle of the night and these cats coming out of Chicago, hiding bundles of the Chicago Defender and then tossing them off the trains in the middle of the night into the fields, them same fields, and these African people getting those bundles and distributing these papers and some of them who couldn't read could look at the pictures and Ms. Hamer could read. So now you, you're seeing, and shit, that's triggering the great migration. I'm getting the hell out. What? Black people doing what? Look at these Negroes in tuxedos and ball gowns. I mean, it was, <laughs> this was a very big threat to the labor force in the South. Um, so at any rate, uh, the forced sterilization takes place in 1961. And that following year, and Ms. Hamer, you know, you talk about a brilliant narrator. What a force in terms of how she talked about that day in August, the 31st of August, 1962, when she went to a meeting, urged at the invitation and urging of her friend, Mary Tucker, and she heard these young people talk about Bob Moses, talk about James Foreman. And I've mentioned this book many times, but I'll take this moment to mention it again. James Foreman's book, The Making of Black Revolutionaries. Because Foreman was on that trip as well. This is a this is a later edition of it. Y'all can get that free. Where they talking about go to try to register to vote, and Miss Hamer goes to try to register to vote. They tell her to copy out a, a a section of Mississippi Constitution and interpret it. And she does. She's not successful. Now, after going through uh, the political education, because what ends up happening when she comes back that night. Her daughter is there. She said, I think they're going to try to make us get off this land. Huh? Then the white man comes, whose father had had the land before him, and says, yeah. You, you she here? There. He comes to her and says, yeah, did you, you went down and try to register your vote? Yeah. Okay, you got to get it. Y'all got to go. What? No, you got to go. And she said, I didn't go down there to register for you. I, I went down there to try to register for myself. And Lou Hamer said, it seemed like that made him madder. It was like, you going tonight. Now, the only reason Pap didn't go that night was because the white man told him, you stay here and get the rest of this crop in. If you do that, I'll let y'all, when you leave, take your furniture. But you going to hold my hot. So he stayed overnight. They worked it in it. But Lou Hamer then went to some friend's house. They, friend's house. They end up shooting up in that house trying to get at her. Why? Because this Negro went down to try to register to vote. She said, I went down to try to vote for myself. Now, anyway, we, we and I, I'm not going to keep going. I'm looking at the clock and I ran out of uh, uh, <laughs> So I don't want to go to some. I'm going I'm to do this right quick because, again, what do we, this is this is fascinating. Take, take your time, Professor. No, 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 no. I want to, because we got so much other stuff that I want to tie it all together, too. So 1962, she makes transition in 77. Simple math. Not even math that a brain like Miss Hamer's would be challenged by, obviously. That's only 15 years. You know, 15 years of public life for a woman that didn't make it to 60. So you're, you're talking about basically from when she was in her mid-40s till she made transition at 59. That is where the woman that we know as Fannie Lou Hamer becomes uh, visible to the social structure. And even within the governance structure, because again, she's very local until then. But the beautiful thing about her is from the moment She's born to the moment she becomes visible in the, in the governance and social structures to the day she makes transition to now. She stayed the same. 
And that's one thing she always talked about. They said, what is this changed you all this visibility, all this fame? She said, no, I'm me. I am me, which is why no documentarian, no writer, no, you know, every time you see a documentary, every time you read a book, you're reading what that person and whatever collective has helped them come together. You're reading what they're curating to narrate. And that's why you always got to ask yourself, what is your objective? And if you ask with that question in mind and those framing questions, guided by that seventh overarching question, which is how do it free us? it becomes immediately clear as you're going line by line, as you're watching a documentary frame by frame, how does this free us? Okay, who are these people to other people? Who are they to each other? Okay, what are their ways of knowing? How do they view the world? Okay, that's interesting. What kind of science and technology did they develop or uh, use to advance their interests? Okay, how as they move through time, do they remember things that happened not only in their lives, but the lives of their communities? Okay, and uh, what culture did they do? What art and what poetry did they do? What music and dance did they do? And how did that mark the time? As you're asking those questions, what you see, most of these documentaries are not about you. They're not about you. They're really about the social structure, who these people are to other people. So as you're doing that, you realize Fannie Hamer's life is often narrated in a way that ends up res resolving itself into a question of who Black people are to the social structure. I'm going to give a very clear example of that in a second. And by the way, that allowed me to get those conceptual categories in, so I got to go back to do that. Again, thinking about those things. So uh, 1963, now she's in the movement. Why? Because the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee has come to Mississippi. They are they building this Council of Federated Organizations out of Jackson. And Miss Hamer, who got and the Hamers got put off that land, they got to have income. They got to have support. Miss Hamer becomes an organizer for SNCC. When they had the money, it was $10 a week, they got paid. And you know, the interviews with Miss Hamer, well, did they always have the money? No, nah, they didn't always have the money, but we we had beans we had people's house we could stay in we had each other and so they struggled to make it through and fan Lou Hamer becomes a full-time organizer a full-time organizer and it was in 1963 july 1963 when they go to try uh no actually they don't go try to register to vote they're at they the bus stops at a um mm, at a uh bus station and segregation jumps in it's columbus mississippi this is when Ms. Hamer gets off the bus to help the people who are getting put out the station, the segregated bus station by the law enforcement, and they arrest her too. And that's how she ends up getting uh, put in Winona prison long enough to be beaten. That's when Lawrence Giot and them used came down and try to get her out. They 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 arrest Giot. Uh, and Lawrence Giot, like a lot of other SNCC veterans, moved to, uh, to, to, to D.C. after some point because Marion Barry, of course, was here and became the mayor of Washington, D.C., and so a lot of that self-determination thrust came out of SNCC folk who ended up relocating to Washington, D.C. By the way, the 60th anniversary of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, their, their conference is coming up. It's fully digital. It's fully online. It's free. Um, and, you know, we'll put out the link where you can register. It actually starts next week. So you can you can hear some of these stories firsthand from people who were there, who were still around as ancestors. And the following year, of course, is Freedom Summer, which begins by Mrs. Hamer running for congress the mississippi democratic freedom party and mdfp uh she's a major figure in that this is a party open to anybody of any background any race in mississippi but it's led by staffed by primarily and the elected officers are almost all black including black women so you got victoria adams you got miss annie divine you've got uh mrs hamer 
And then you got Aaron Henry, who is very important. Aaron Henry is the leader. He's the chair. Panlu Hamer is the co-chair. And they have this freedom vote. Why? Because they say the Democratic Party is all white. It's segregationist. It's Jim Crow. Y'all don't let nobody else in. So we're going to have a freedom vote. And they organize tens of thousands of people to participate. And they want to elect their own delegates to the summer's Democratic National Convention. But they also are running for elective offices. Ms. Hamer runs for Congress. The first vote, because the first time she went down there, they told her, uh, read this part of the Constitution and interpret it. Uh, okay. And said, no, nah, this ain't right. Whatever. Then she went again. And, or oh, I, I guess I skipped over something. Um, when she went to take people to register, because remember, she went to uh, down there with her friend. Um, and they, 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 they were coming back on the bus. They had a bus that they had brought. The police stopped them, turn around, tell them, turn around, go back to Indianola, where y'all came from, where y'all tried to register the vote. Okay. Then they arrest them. Uh, they come, no, they threaten to arrest them because they pull they pull them over and say, your bus is the wrong color. Huh? Yes, yeah, the wrong color, yellow. So what, what? What are you talking about? The fine is $100. Then they talked them down to 50 Then they talked them down to 30 They were able to pay that fine and get away, but they did arrest the bus driver. But on that bus is when Bob Moses and them tell the story that that's when we discovered that Fan Lou Hamer had this ability to keep everybody calm and had this deep leadership quality because in from the back of the bus, Miss Hamer started singing, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, yeah, this little light of mine. Miss Hamer started singing and most of them like, damn, that woman, man, she, and somebody said, that's Miss Hamer, she can sing. <laughs> but when they found out, she can do a whole lot more, but she can sing too. And it was like, oh man. So again, coming back to 1963, they're down there. That's when she gets arrested trying to help these people who are coming out of this bus station. She gets beat like hell. And that's what brings 1964 into focus. So by the time we get to that powerful testimony Ms. Hamer gives, and if you want to play a little bit of it, Ms. Hamer dictates to the Credentials Committee, the Democratic National Committee in Atlantic City, New Jersey that summer, her life story of how, where she came up, where she, the things she's been through and what has happened since she began to struggle for the right to vote. But in that earlier election, those primaries where they voted for congressperson and stuff like that, as they organized the Freedom Democrats, she runs for office because the second time Fannie Lou Hamer went to try to register to vote, they gave her the Constitution. She interpreted it. They asked for her receipts for the poll tax. Huh? Poll tax, because that's all that stuff was still legal. She showed, she succeeded. Ms. Fannie Hamer said, the first time I was able to vote as a citizen in the United States, because remember in Mississippi where she was at, she said, I didn't even know she gave any receipt. We didn't even know you could register to vote. Voting was white people. We didn't even know that was a thing. We knew it was a constitution, but ain't nobody read the constitution. But by then she had read it. They had studied it. They had studied in these citizenship education programs. She loved Septima Clark, among others. We talk about them another time, Dorothy Cotton and them. But the first time Fannie Lou Hamer pulled a lever in a poll, she said, the first time I voted in America, I voted for myself. I was running for Congress. I was like, wow. I mean, come on now. You can't, you know, see, she's she's working for American democracy. No, she's working for herself and her community. Because if it was American democracy, she still wouldn't have been able to vote. Come on now. Oh, no, it's aspirational, right? It's aspirational. So when she comes to Atlantic City, she's there with the Mississippi Freedom Democrats. They come up from Mississippi. There's an interracial delegation, um, mostly black. And they're going to bust up the Democratic Party. And when they get there, of course, 
they are not seated by the Democratic Party. Lyndon Johnson's going to run for re-election. Well, election of his first term, because remember, he's there because of Kennedy in 63. And he sends Hubert Humphrey, who wants to be the vice president. And y'all know that story because you've seen I was on the prize a million times or you can get it other places. But Miss Hamer, among others, Aaron Henry testifies. Other people testify. I think Dr. King. And then you have Miss Hamer. She sits at the table. And that's when she gives what I call uh, her I question America speech. When we talked about Emmett Till, you have Moses Wright to say, Darhi, if you see the man that took your Darhi and you hear Miss Miss, is this America? Mr. Chairman and to the credentials committee, my name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer and I live at 626 East Lafayette Street, Roosevelt, Mississippi. Sunflower County, the home of Senator James O. Eastland and Senator Stinnett. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola with, by policemen, highway patrolmen, and they only allowed two of us in to take the literacy test at the time. After we had taken this test and started back to Roosevelt, we were held up by the city police and the state highway patrolmen and carried back to Indianola, where the bus driver was charged that day with driving a bus the wrong color. After we paid the fine among us, we continued on to Roosevelt and Reverend Jeff Sonny carried me four miles in the rural area where I had worked as a timekeeper and sharecropper for 18 years. I was met there by my children that told me the plantation owner was angry because I had gone down, tried to register. After they told me, my husband came and said the plantation owner was raising cane because I had tried to register. And before he quit talking, the plantation owner came and said, Fannie Lou, do you know, did Pap tell you what I said? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I mean that, that if you don't go down and withdraw your registration, you will have to leave. That then if you go down and withdraw, that you still might have to go because we are not ready for that in Mississippi. And I addressed him and told him that I didn't try to register for you. I tried to register for myself. I had to leave that same night. On the 10th of September, 1962, 16 bullets were fired into the home of Mr. and Mrs. Robert Tucker for me. That same night, two girls were shot in Roosevelt, Mississippi. Also, Mr. Joe McDonald's house was shot in. In June the 9th, 1963, I had attended a voter registration workshop was returning back to Mississippi. Ten of us was traveling by the Cutting Little Trailway bus. When we got to Winona, Mississippi, which is Montgomery County, 
Four of the people got off to use the washroom. And two of the people to use the restaurant. Two of the people wanted to use the washroom. The four people that had gone in to use the restaurant was ordered out during this time I was on the bus. But when I looked through the window and saw they had rushed out, I got off of the bus to see what had happened. And one of the ladies said it was a state highway patrolman and a chief of police ordered us out. I got back on the bus, and one of the persons who had used the washroom got back on the bus, too. As soon as I was seated on the bus, I saw when they began to get the five people in a highway patrolman's car. I stepped off of the bus to see what was happening, and somebody screamed from the car that the fire workers was in and said, get that one there. And when I went to get in the car, when the man told me I was under arrest, he kicked me. I was carried to the county jail and put in the booking room. They left some of the people in the booking room and began to place us in cells. I was placed in a cell with a young woman called Miss Vesta Simpson. After I was placed in the cell, I began to hear sounds of licks and screams. I could hear the sounds of licks and horrible screams. And I could hear somebody say, can you say yes, sir, nigga? Can you say yes, sir? And they would say other horrible names. She would say, yes, I can say yes, sir. So I said, she said, I don't know you well enough. They beat her, I don't know how long. And after a while, she began to pray and ask God to have mercy on those people. And it wasn't too long before three white men came to my cell. One of these men was a state highway patrolman. And he asked me where I was from. And I told him, Roosevelt. He said, we're going to check this. And they left my cell, and it wasn't too long before they came back. He said, you were from Roosevelt, all right, and he used the curse word. And he said, we're going to make you wish you was dead. I was carried out of that cell into another cell where they had two Negro prisoners. The state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro to take the blackjack. The first Negro prisoner ordered me by orders from the State Highway Patrolman for me to lay down on a bunk bed on my face. And I laid on my face, the first Negro began to beat. And I was beat by the first Negro until he was exhausted. I was holding my hands behind me at that time on the left side because I suffered from polio when I was six years old. After the first Negro had beat until he was exhausted, the state highway patrolman ordered the second Negro to take the blackjack. The second Negro began to beat and I began to work my feet. And the state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro had beat to sit on my feet. To keep me from working my feet. I began to scream and one white man got up and began to beat me in my head and tell me to hush. One white man, my dress had worked up high. He walked over and pulled my dress, I pulled my dress down 
and he pulled my dress back up. I was in jail when Matthew Evers was murdered. All of this is on account of we want to register to become first-class citizens. And if the Freedom Democratic Party is not seated now, I question America. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, where we have to sleep with our telephones off of the hook because our lives be threatened daily because we want to live as decent human beings in America? Thank you. The the tactic of getting black people to beat to to punish to to um do the work that the cowards um they they want to do it but there's something really evil next level to get one of your own to to deliver the blow and we we experience it uh now you know politically and social media to get one of your own you know whether it's uh somebody with the last name of Owens or, or hmm. Whitlock or, or Steele, you know. Yeah. Come on there, now. You know, um, and it's interesting. It's interesting, you know. Um, yeah, as I'm listening to her, Lyndon Johnson called a, a pr- impromptu uh, press conference to try to subvert people from watching this at the Democratic National Convention. That's right. What did he know about Fannie Lou Hamer? What did he know about this woman? that he had to call a press conference to get the attention away from her. Mm-hmm. He knew she was Martin Luther King. In other words, he knew this was not someone who might temper what they say. And it's the raw humanity. If there is a soul and a human listening to that, they are going to respond. In other words, this is not a bullshit artist. In other words, this is not me. I can't, this is not a flag waiver. In fact, Mrs. Hamer said, you know, I call this country the land of the tree and the home of the slave. <laughs> if, 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 this, if the freedom Democrats are not seated today, I question America. That's the governance structure talking right there. That's not, I'm fighting for the soul of America has no soul. If, if, if y'all got a soul, we'll be in these chairs. And if we don't get in those chairs, I question the social structure. This is not aspirational for me. Do y'all understand? At six years old, the truck pulled up. Can you walk? Yeah, get on. Cotton time. My life is not the life of Thomas. Je- I don't even, you know, I can read well, but Thomas Jefferson, James Madison? No. And if you want me to dress up and go sit in 2021 in a in a Hamilton play, all right, I'll go for a night out. But that right there, that's not my life. I don't care how, what color you make, George Washington, Lynn manuel if we are not seated, in other words, if there's not, if this isn't translated into a reality, I question, Amir, this is what Prime Minister Mia Motley, Mia Moore Motley was saying in Barbados. She said, look here now, if y'all don't distribute these vaccines, oh man, y'all got to go right. And, we, and we'll, we'll, we'll post a clip. Look, one thing about the narrative team, some of y'all are like, man, how can I join the narrative team? Just, you know, come on over because we got a crack team. The, the Press of Hunter is curating a beautiful team, particularly of young people who are doing this research. They'll, they'll link the video. When Mia Motley, the Prime Minister, Mia Amor Motley, who is the third generation in her family of politicians, from her grandfathers to her uncle, 
to her uh, father. And now she's the prime minister of that little 20 mile by 15 mile country of not even 300,000 people, about 290,000 people. First that, woman, first woman. First woman, for sure. But also Barbados in this transatlantic enslavement process. Yes. Point of entry into South Carolina was Barbados, right? That was about that. That's right. The British. That's right. It's the easternmost uh, in the Caribbean. So that's the first land they could land on. Was Barbados as small as it is? As the as the uh, OJ's uh, recorded their album "Ship Ahoy, Ship Ahoy." That was the first place. This is not a sixteen nineteen project in Point Comfort. We're gonna de-anglicize the terror field call and say it was Barbados. That's the first, and that was, as you say, the link to those port cities in not only uh, the Caribbean, not only North America, as you say, but also Latin America. How could something that small be that important? Because. So, so what's the importance of, of Mia Motley and Barbados now throwing off the yoke of the monarchy? Um, well, well, that's the brilliant thing. When you, the thing about Barbados was it very quickly became black. And we're talking about now the 17th century, the 1600s, because they brought that labor force in. Its primary crop, although there were other crops, vegetable stuff, was sugar. Because remember, sugar is the international drug. People talk about the international drug trade. Okay, let's talk about the international drug trade. Can we start with the first two in the international drug trade? Well, cocaine or uh, marijuana? No. <laughs> sugar, tobacco. Let's put another one in. Coffee. See my addiction? Although it's in a beautiful narrative cup. <laughs> The point is sugar and coffee. That's why we having this conversation in English. And Barbados, like Haiti for the French, Jamaica also for the Spanish to the English took it from sugar. But but more importantly, as you say, it's kind of like a traffic cop in some ways. Barbados land lying out there. It's not even really part of the. Uh, it, it's not. It's in the Eastern Caribbean. It's the foremost island. It's not with the Antilles. Not with the Lower Antilles. Which is one reason she got up at the UN last week and blasted them about not just COVID. Where she said, y'all holding hostage trillions. One, oh no, she said, no. Yeah, she did say trillions, but in another context, 1.7 billion vaccine doses being held by those countries you call the most developed countries. And $9.3 trillion in capitalization from just the top five tech firms. She said, no, we, you know, Lack of access to data and knowledge for the vast majority of people in the world. Think about Ms. Hamer saying, we didn't even know about these affairs, voting and how to encourage it, because we was too busy picking cotton trying to stay alive. They didn't have access to data and information. And what they had was the intelligence. What they had was the love and commitment. And once you put that with the access to data and knowledge, you get a Ms. Hamer emerge. Because what Ms. Hamer used to always say, in fact, she was in one interview and they said, well, you know, have you already thought about this? Meaning people lower down in the class structure. Have you really thought about what you want? She's let me tell y'all something. While we out here picking cotton and at night when we sitting there getting ready to go to sleep, all we do is think. What do you think? You think we thought about it? In other words, Miss Hamer was not for that BS. Well, I went to Harvard. I, I went to Yale. I went to Cotton and I was thinking the whole time. So if you're going to come down here with your study on democracy, I'm going to hit you with until 
The Mississippi, if the Freedom Democrats aren't seated, I question America. I mean, I question Yale, Harvard, CNN, HBO. I question all the deals for the bourgeois Negroes, which she had smoke for. And then the Prime Minister of Barbados, in a similar vein, says, "If because because she, she had a prepared speech. If you when you watch this, she's reading from her phone. Why? Because as she's listening." to the opening that day, because it's a new director general, and I said, she's congratulating them. And then she says at the beginning, I had a prepared speech, I abandoned it. I'm not gonna stay up here long. And she's got like Miss Hamer, you heard Miss Hamer, has that resonant kind of alto, lower alto. Mia more Motley got like uh, a bass trouble in her voice. Like a baritone. So, my God, when you hear her, like she's standing there like, you know, come on now. and. See, the thing about the Caribbean community, and one of her, uh, uh, I think it was, maybe it was her grandfather, was one of the, uh, or maybe, well, yeah, I think it was her grandfather's generation. They were one of the founders, helped found in, in what became in 1973, started as a trade association. It became 1973, the Caribbean community. In other words, they have a federation. And the heads of state of each of the Caribbean nations in CARICOM rotate as chair. So she just rotated out not too long ago as chair of CARICOM. Uh, and one of the things in her portfolio is responsibility for developing the reparations policy that CARICOM has had for a long time. Shout out to uh, Sir Hillary McBeckles, who has done so much work on this as part of the uh, uh, the reparations coalition, uh, NARC, National American Reparations Commission. Um, he is the Caribbean representative. He's like the foremost guy on reparations in the, in the Caribbean. And also, you know, my heart, my people, my organization, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America and COBRA. So, but so, so the CARICOM has been talking about this and Prime Minister Motley has also been in the leadership of pushing the Caribbean nations to open up embassies in Africa. She been to Kenya. In fact, she apologized because of COVID. They weren't able to meet in Kenya like they were going to do before. And also extending the invitation and working to develop African countries having embassies in the Caribbean. So when she stands up, she says, I was going to get a speech. She said, but if I had given the speech I prepared, y'all heard that before. It's the same speech most everybody else is giving. I threw that away. Let me take these few minutes. I won't be up here long. And when you hear her, when she says, I won't be up here long, she's saying it pretty much the same pitch I'm saying. <laughs> so she said, you got a, you look, you got a bit, you got a billion point seven vaccines that haven't been distributed. And she says, make no mistake. Make no mistake, until all of us are safe, none of us are safe. She said, you got $9.3 trillion, $9.3 trillion in capitalization for just the top five tech firms. And you got most people in the world who don't have basic access to data and knowledge and information. She said, we do have the means. It's not that we don't have the means for equity for people to develop in this whole world. We don't have the will. And she's being charitable when she says we. Because what she has also announced, they announced this uh, last week as well. No, it's the 22nd, I think. 22nd of, uh, of September. Barbados announced that they will no longer be part of the Commonwealth. Now, though, those of you who fantasize about being maybe the one Negro at court, in Bridgerton, or perhaps want to know about baby Archie, it's probably going to cause you a tear. Oh, the other thing about Barbados, because it is so small and compact, because a third of the people on the island live in Bridgerton, which is the city, because it was invaded by the British and then used as that kind of traffic cop in some ways, it is perhaps the most thoroughly British soaked of the colonies. But because it became so black so fast, 
It is also one of the colonies that is has a fierce feeling for self-determination. That's another word for governance, by the way. Self-determination. We will determine our future. So Ms. Hamer is talking about, uh, I question America. She's not saying I'm aspiring to democracy. She's saying, no, I am for self-determination. My family tried, they poisoned our cows. And so my mom and them had me in self-determination because what you never heard Fannie Lou Hamer do or say or feel by if we can take what she said and did as records, you never heard her dwell in inferiority because her mama understood cultural meaning making. Fannie Lou Hamer said, my mama gave me black dolls. I had black dolls. Whoa, what does that mean? She said, I always knew black was beautiful. My mama taught me that. So when you hear in Fannie Lou Hamer, you're not talking about somebody who's come begging at the well of George Washington and, and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Delano Roosevelt looking for, <laughs> no, she said, I question you. So when you hear the prime minister of Barbados, you're coming from an island where they have a fierce self-determination and because it came so black so fast, it's fed constantly with these African cultural undertones. So those who are crying about Bridgerton, those who are crying about baby Archie and all them, nah, Barbados knows that stuff better than y'all do. Because until last week, or until the 22nd of September, the queen was the titular head of state in it. And they say, nah, we done. We're done. We're done. There are 16 countries in the Commonwealth. They range from Canada to New Zealand. Wait, Canada's in the Commonwealth? Yeah. So being in the Commonwealth really doesn't mean, I mean, if Canada's an independent country, sure, sure. Barbados is an independent country. But the symbolic value of a black country saying, hey, she's 94 years old. Oh, you lost your husband. That's too bad. We sent a delegation. It's great. You know, Godspeed. Hope you live another 94 year. Oh, by the way, one other thing. What's that? <laughs> Deuces. <laughs> And, and the woman, the sister with the gap in her teeth and a natural hair standing up in the well of the United Nations, like when we gonna when we gonna be about that vaccine life. Y'all got y'all sitting on a billion seven and all you tech billion. Hey Jeff, Zuck, hey man. I understand you lost six billion dollars last week on the humble because somebody got in your thing and shut your I don't even care about that. What I'm saying is though, uh, she said, when they gonna put a tablet in every child's hand. The reason every child don't have a tablet and every person don't have a vaccine is not a matter of means. It's a matter of will. And if you don't redistribute, and she uses the word redistribute, y'all. If y'all don't redistribute, she doesn't say this, but in the words of Fannie Lou Hamer, I question the United Nations. <laughs> in other words, how going to be the UN when you got the Security Council making all the decisions and you got people in America who are not connected internationally thinking somehow the United States is an honest broker. Joe Biden stood up there too. Joe Biden stood up there and he can't pass nothing. And it ain't because of two senators. It's because of 52. Because they have conceded the white nationalist party, including their Negro uh, mascot, Tim Mission Accomplished Scott, who they sent in to sink the George Floyd legislation. They have conceded that 50 of the senators are white nationalists, including the black white nationalists. And so you can't hang this on cinema and mansion if you believe in American democracy. No, you know it's a lie. Miss Hamer knew it was a lie, which is why after she sat there and Linda Johnson said, and the direct quote also uses the N-word. Who is this? Get her off television. The message had already gotten out. And that's when he sends... Hubert Humphrey, who wants so bad to be on the ticket, 
who ends up getting on the ticket. And who does Humphrey turn to? He turns to a guy who just made transition in the last year, uh, who worked pretty much to the day died at the same law firm Angie Porter. He worked at in Minneapolis, St. Paul. That guy ended up being the vice president of the United States under Jimmy Carter. But at the time, he was attorney general of Minnesota. His name was Walter Fritz Mondale. Walter Mondale was Hubert Humphrey, also Minneapolis, his man. So when Johnson leaned on Humphrey, Humphrey leaned on Mondale. Mondale comes in the room, and they're going to broker the deal. Who's in the room? You got Aaron Henry in there. He's the chair of the MFDP, uh, Freedom Democrats. You got Martin Luther King in there. You know, you Negroes is trying to figure this out. Come on, y'all. What do you mean? So they come up with a compromise. Okay. They tell the all-white segregationist Mississippi delegation, you know, we'll seat you, but we got to also allow some compromise. So we will seat two delegates from the Mississippi Freedom Democrats. They ain't sitting with us. No, we'll get other states to allow them to come in and sit with them. Well, the white nationalists in Mississippi, like Mitch McConnell uh, now, like uh, the the uh, the corn pone governor of Texas, like the uh, blow dry greasy still, how can you be greasy and blow dry at the same time? Governor of Florida, <laughs> uh, how it's, uh, just like the uh, the, the governor of uh, the clan adjacent governor of Georgia, they said two that's too too many. These white boys decide we're not gonna be seated at all. We don't want them even in the room in Atlantic City. And then when they come to Annie Devine and Victoria Gray Adams, well Victoria Gray. Um, her married name ultimately was Adams. I went, I went to grad school with Cecil Gray, who was uh, um, her, her, her son. They come to Victoria Adams. They come to uh, Annie Devine. They come to Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Jo Baker, the young people watching them because they didn't come up too. I'm talking about people who are now ancestors like Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael, Bob Moses. Also, some who are not ancestors still fighting like Eleanor Holmes Norton, Congresswoman Norton. They young. They all been, they watching. They come. Well, here's the deal. Here's the compromise. They will still be seated and we'll get two seats. Miss Hamer and I'm looking. Okay. What y'all think? Miss Hamer said, we don't want no two seats when all of us is tired. It's everybody or nobody. Dr. King, you all right? <laughs> you all right, bro? Because <laughs> see, you don't know like I know. And in interviews, what Miss Hamer often said was, um, and there's an interview uh, in the Pacifica archives, the vaults of Pacifica network, and everybody can get it. We'll drop that link as well. And uh, he, she's asked in an interview about King and them, and she says, you know, the black middle class is different. They can't speak for us. They didn't suffer like I suffered. And and, and then the guy asked, you know, he's, and again, white interviewers are all here. And, and I'm not grouping all white interviewers in this category, only most. I call it... Uh, curating this is a curation process but it's like um it's like a intellectual imperialism it's intellectual colonialism because the questions they ask are oriented from the social structure so it's either if you find something that sounds like a conflict you keep harping on it so what do you think about martin luther king or were there any white people involved that's always a question what, hold on any? hold on i think we got that hold on Oh, go, please. Okay, good. Yeah, let's let Miss Hamer. If you got it queued up, beautiful. See, y'all can't make this up. Beautiful. Let's see if Miss Hamer talk about it. Yes. One of the greatest things that ever happened. In fact, I admire those people. 
I respect those people. Oh, oh wait, can you back it up oh, a little bit? Uh, yeah. Okay, all okay. right. What so, Christina is about to ask her about is the deacons. Pay pay very close attention. If okay, wait. Deacons, so how uh, how far back? How no, far de back? Deacons is good. Ask about the deacons. All right, hold on. Yeah, the, de the, the In fact, that'll give me a chance to say because uh, there's a brother here in D.C. Uh, Chuck okay. Hicks, who they call Mr. Black History. I love that brother. Uh, his daddy was a member of the deacons uh, for defense. If you've never heard of the Deacons for Defense, y'all look that up. In fact, the Deacons for Defense and Justice, uh, Jonesboro, Louisiana, these black men were armed. You understand? In fact, the Deacons for Defense is a group. In fact, there was a movie made. I want to say Forrest Whitaker was in that movie on the Deacons for Defense. The uh, This is July 1964, Freedom Summer period. You got black people who come in, Charles Sims and them. They're like, look, we will defend these nonviolent. They nonviolent. They nonviolent. So the whole way, so this white interviewer is about to ask Fan Lou Hamer what she thinks about the Deacons for Defense because, of course, she's not violent. This little light of mine, I'll take the ass whipping. I would never fight y'all with my fists. I'll just have my pocketbook and then, no. Now we can hear. But the Deacons now in the South is armed defense organization so that you're outside of the control of police officials like this. Why has this not happened? Is it because the white people there are so powerful that such a they rebellion are, has been impossible? They are very powerful in the state of Mississippi. But some of the people I think is beginning to get where now they just don't care. They are beginning to see if they try to do anything for themselves, well, they'll be killed anyway. By the, the police officials? By the police officials because it's nowhere that I would call myself going in the state of Mississippi to be protected by police officials because they are working in a savage. The federal government isn't able to effectively give you security. No, because as you know, the three civil rights workers that was murdered in Mississippi, they said that our civil rights hadn't been violated. They are dead. And one, one of their killers is still the sheriff. That's right. In fact, the same men, uh, Rainey and Price, was assisting the people across the street when they was having memorial service this year of Cheney, Goodman, and Michael Strona. And Michael Strona was a Jewish person. He was one of the greatest men I ever met. I knew him very well and his wife, Rita. And, and you know, I couldn't have went there for memorial service, not and let these same two police officials guard me across the street. I wouldn't have been low enough below that death to go across the street, let them guard me across the street. No question. If it hadn't been for them, they wouldn't have been dead. What do you feel about the deacons? This is frightening some white people, but I, I can't, I, I can't <laughs> understand why they don't understand that this is a natural development. It's frightening me, say me. One of the greatest things that ever happened. Ooh. In fact, I admire those people. I respect those people because they are doing what I believe every under the heaven feel if he doesn't have the guts to say it. <laughs> That's the governance structure. They are doing what every Negro, un Negro under heaven feels. If, even if they don't have the guts to say it. Now, I know a lot of y'all, when y'all interview black people, you know they lying, they know they lying, 
but they don't want to get put off a of TV or their anchor job. And then every once in a while, you kill one too many Negroes and they go left, Don Lemon. Or they go, <laughs> because I've had enough. I'm sick and tired of being sick. Miss Hamer didn't have to get to that point because she, in fact, what, 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 what old folks say? If you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. In other words, yeah. What do you, what do you, what do you think about the deacons? It's frightening a lot of white people, myself included. I, I don't know about the deacons. They have guns, you see. I've just asked you about murderers who are still the sheriffs, but that's okay. They don't really frighten me as much because even though I despise their behavior, they, like me, are white, and I've learned to accommodate racists like uh, like those killers of Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney, and, and perhaps even uh, uh, Greg Abbott or Joe Manchin, uh, who are perhaps have not killed anyone directly, uh, perhaps maybe, uh, not kill anyone directly, but uh, their racist behavior, I'm still willing to write op-eds and uh, to furrow my brow. And as long as my check, but what, what do you think about these blacks who have decided to uh, uh, to take things in their own hands? I think I admire them very greatly. In fact, they are doing what every, not some, what every Negro feel in their heart. Every, no, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say every Negro because every Negro would assume maybe just the United States. Let me get this straight. Uh, every Negro under the heaven <laughs> would do if they had the guts to say it. In other words, I'm not one of those Negroes who's going to give you the answer that maybe gets me to grant. And oh. I'm not even going to talk, I'm not even going to make a spectacle out of it so that I can get the grant from really shouting it. No, I'm just going to answer it very plainly. Now, before we go on, Ms. Hamer, remember now, the deacons are founded in July 1964. And when you see them, this is when Freedom Summer is unfolding. Ms. Hamer and them go to Atlantic City at the end of this summer. In August, they're there. They get sold out. Ms. Hamer, by the way, comes back to the Democratic National Committee in 68 in Chicago Convention. In 72, she's there. By then, she's sick. But she gives these speeches, and her speeches have been recorded, by the way. This is where I'm going with this. And then after the end of Freedom Summer and this betrayal, the betrayal, by the way, that leads to um, almost not, not even more so than a butterfly effect, but it really moves that movement into another phase. In some ways, it becomes an engine for internationalization. They begin to look beyond, and, and there's a key moment in this, and it's written about in a whole lot of places. James Foreman has a chapter in it, The Making Black Revolutionaries. Harry Belafonte writes about it in his memoir because he helps pay for this. They, they take a delegation to Africa. And this is when Mrs. Hamer, in fact, let's go to it. This is the book. This, If you get one book on Fannie Lou Hamer, this is a good book to get. The speeches of Fannie Lou Hamer, to tell it like it is, Morgan, I'm sorry, Megan Parker Rhodes and David Houck. Now, this is an edited volume of select speeches. She gave a number of speeches. Many were recorded. And you can see there in the table of contents, the names of some of them. I'm going to quote from a couple of them. Here goes some more. But before we go to that, I want to go just for a second to the trip to Africa. Mrs. Hamer goes to Africa. And when she goes to Africa, in fact, let me see if I, let me see. Oh, huh. 
I had the book covered up with a newspaper that I had opened and folded. This is that book I was telling y'all about by uh, Professor uh, Gabaye, who uh, just wrote this book called A Theory of African Constitutionalism. So read Pauli, uh, watch that Pauli Murray document, documentary, but watch it in the context of a book like this and also the book Pauli Murphy co-authored Law in Africa, which is the first in the Law in Africa uh, series, The Constitution and Government of Africa. Again, who are Africans to each other? Not who they are to Ruth Bader Ginsburg or nationalization of women. And all that's important in the social structure and it's important as we engage in it, but you should always start with the question, who are we to each other? The reason that we put the governance category second is because we have all been educated so deeply in the social structure relationship that if you don't start with that one, it can feel very foreign to go into who you are to each other, which Ms. Hamer understood. So Ms. Hamer ends up going to Africa. And let me see if I pulled, because I don't want to, uh, let me see if I have something here. Do I have a, no, I'll just narrate it very, very quickly. When Fannie Hamer goes to the continent, they're going to Guinea. Uh, in West Africa. Guinea is an independent uh, country that was headed at the time by the first prime minister. The brother's name was Sekou Ture. Sekou Ture ends up, uh, he's a guy who ends up being very close with and to uh, our brother um, Kwame Ture. In fact, Kwame Ture takes his last name from Sekou Ture, his first name from Kwame Nkrumah, who he spends time with, both these cats. But Miss Hamer, mm, I know I have it. I don't want to misquote her. Hold on. It might be in, it may be in this one. It might be in this one. Because Miss Hamer talks about when she goes to Africa. Mm -mm, hold on a second. Let me think about this. Let me think about this, Karen. Who was our, because mm, there are a number of accounts. Julian Bond writes about it. Um, in fact, let me see. It's not Julian Bond. It's not Jim Foreman. Mm, I forget who I was just reading who was talking about it. Anyway. Belafonte comes in to the hotel. They checked in the hotel and Belafonte says to them, uh, the president wants to meet you. So Ms. Hamer is in her room. She says, oh yes, tell him I'll be ready in a couple of hours. I'm taking a bath, darling. And then he was like, no, really? She was like, what? So she <laughs> she jumps out the tub, but gets, gets dressed, her hair is still wet. The president of Guinea comes in the white robes, you know, and if you ever see a picture of Sekou Ture, he, he wears a white, often has a white kufi, trade unionist, very important figure, um, long white flowing uh, uh, top outfit, almost like an Agbada. He sees Miss Hamer, he swoops her up, gives her that kiss kiss, <laughs> cheek cheek. She busts out crying. <laughs> and Everybody is sit, standing there, according to the accounts of the people, they all sitting there and stand there in tears. Why? Ms. Hamer said, I've tried in my own country of birth to meet with the president. Never did that. I had to come to Africa to meet you. And Ms. Hamer start, oh man. No, you know what? I know where it is. It's in here. She's telling me now. I'm sorry, Ms. Hamer. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Man, if you heard, remember the testimony she's given in Atlantic City? She said, when they had me in prison and I heard them beating the sister and they kept saying, say, sir, nigga, say, sir. And, and, and then the white man says, can you say, sir? She said, yes. He said, well, why don't you say it? Here come the governance structure. No, here comes the ways of knowing in the governance structure. I don't know you. 
Oh, then they keep beating her. Miss Hammer said, they asked that woman, they asked that girl, can you say, sir? Yeah. Well, why don't you say it? I don't know you. So y'all got to understand something about black people. You think that that flag means something to us? Miss, In fact, let me not do that. I'm going to, Miss Hammer going to tell you about that flag too. All right, here we go. Miss Hamer was interviewed. Let me see if I can get to the page quickly. Fannie Lou Hamer was interviewed from April 14th in a session on April the 14th, 1972 to January 25th, 1973 by one of these uh, colonial representatives. He may be a nice guy, but I don't care. I'm just typifying him because he comes out of the social structure. Again, black people live and die, do all this suffering, win these victories, and then another gen in a generation, wait two or three generations, and here come the academic vultures standing over our archives like vultures trying to deny you access to the thing your ancestors created as the price of admission. You got to beg and say, okay, well, I'm going to write this certain kind of way. Then they give you a certain little prize, and then you get gets good to you. Then you write some more. Then you're on TV. And the next thing you know, you're talking about they died for American democracy and getting drunk at night because you didn't know you didn't lie. You know Fannie Lou Hamer. But the point is that this interview was conducted by Dr. Neil McMillan from uh, the University of Southern Mississippi. Now I say, okay, well, man, Mississippi, huh? they, they're coming around. Hell, they came around before Ms. Hamer made transition. You know, the, uh, the Mississippi legislature passed a, a unanimous resolution honoring her in 1972. <laughs> kind of joke. Anyway, so Ms. Hamer, in part two of the interview, let me see, can I get to part two? All right, here he is, McMillan, Ms. Hamer. Let's begin with your trip to Africa. How many trips have you made? And what did you do in Africa? Ms. Hamer said, just one. You know, I never had never been out of the States in my life. And after the convention in 1964, we needed rest. It was people like Harry Belafonte, and I don't even know who else was involved, who supported us making it possible for 11 of us to go to Africa, just to see Africa and try to, you know, we had learned and heard so many things about Africa. I wasn't sure whether I'd be frightened or what, because what little we read about Africa was just wild. We didn't know, really. We didn't know where, uh, what they were, that they were our people. Stop. Why are you always talking about Africa? You ain't no African. We didn't know. Remember what the Prime Minister Barbados said? You can put a tablet in every child's hand. You don't have the will. In fact, a lot of this ignorance in the world is curated ignorance. So what people think in the United States they know about Africa, they're getting from pop culture. And what people in Africa think they know about the Africans of the diaspora, they're getting from pop culture. And who's standing right there mediating the whole thing? The social structure. So every time we go to Africa, I take students to Africa, we land, we around. First thing they want to hear about, Beyonce, Jay, was it? What? Because that's what they see. Miss Hamer is saying, we didn't know what to expect. Miss Hamer then says, so to get to Africa. No, no. She says, although we realize they were our ancestors, this is the go back to Africa crowd who Miss Hamer said, you go back to Ireland, you go back to Poland, you go back to and get these Native Americans they land back to. Go back to Africa. Find it on a map and I'll go. Uh, uh, right. Africa. CRT. Islamic terror. These are just labels for defend whiteness at all costs. Because if I hear something that makes me uncomfortable in my whiteness, this is a threat. Another way of thinking about that is perhaps, so I don't know, uh, American democracy. But anyway, we continue. She says, we didn't know really. We really didn't know that they were our people. Although we realized they were our ancestors, we didn't know how they act. There it is. Ms. Hamer says, so we get to Africa. She said, we stopped. I think it was Dakar. We got on the Ghanaian flight. We went to Conakry. And it was, so the flight they leave from is white people, white flight attendants. White. She says, they got on the Ghanaian flight 
and went to Conakry, Guinea. And she says, and it was, I had never seen a black stewardess on a plane. Pause. I had never seen a black stewardess on a plane. Now she been flying because she ends up going to these northern cities. She goes to Chicago, she goes to Philadelphia, she ends up in New York, which we're going to come to in a second. But this is her first trip out the country. She says, when I saw a man come out of the cockpit who was black, right away, then this meant that it was going to be different from what I had been used to, what had been taught to me. It was something different. Well, when we got to the airport, there stood President Sekou Toure, and they had a delegation of welcome to welcome us there. And after we got situated where we were staying as guests of the government, after we got everybody got a bath and changed, the government was there and the president was there in less than an hour after we got there. It was just remarkable. She said, I saw some of the most intelligent people, you know, because I'd never seen in my life where black people were running banks. I'd never seen nobody behind the counter in a bank. I had never seen anybody behind the counter in a bank. It's 1964. Professor Hunter, by the time Fannie Lou Hamer made this trip, we were in the process of coming into the top of the earth. In other words, this is not ancient history. Many people who are listening to this right now, you were around. Ms. Ms. Hamer said, I ain't never even seen a black person in the cab behind the counter of the bank. I had never seen nobody black running the government in my life. So it was quite a revelation to me. I really learned something for the first time because then I could feel myself never, ever being ashamed of my ancestors and my background. I learned a lot. It taught me a lot while I was there because the welcome and even the shame that we have here in this country, they don't have it there. Pause. Black lives matter. Because the welcome and even the shame that we have here in this country, Black Lives Matter is not about shame. Sure it is. Sit with it. Or perhaps before you sit with it, go read some France Fanon. Who are you trying to convince your life matters? Come try to take it, deacons for defense. You'll find out. Miss Hamer said, all we do is think. I never knew my life didn't matter. What I'm fighting for is for the equitable redistribution of resources. I'm not fighting to lose my identity because these same cotton fields I came out of, that's where Mother Waters came from. That's where Howlin' Wolf came from. And y'all danced to that music. I mean, you took it, messed it up paid yourself to play it, stole the masters, and called yourselves the greatest musicians of all time, even built a building for yourselves to go in. You know, Rolling Stones, you know, Beatles, you know, as Abby Lincoln said, they came here to steal it. And then you Negroes turn around and worship them too. And then they feed you back the worst of your performances. And then you say, this is the best of our culture. Come on now. Now the point is this, goes on. Now, here we go. She says, because the welcome and even the shame that we have here in this country, they don't have it there. In performing and all that kind of stuff, we have been made to feel ashamed of so many things they're not. And it's not unclean. It's just innocent people, you know, just pure innocence. And people almost as true as our little children. Because that that's just about the truest thing that we have in this country at this time is little children. They don't tell tales. If they think you're ugly, they'll tell you. And if they think you've made a mistake, kids speak out. It was kind of, well, it was a real honesty. I'm going to pause there because that quote is used a lot of places when they talk about Miss Hamer. The, the fact that the Africans don't, oh, no, no, that's not part of it. Uh, the fact that, no, the, the quote, little children, the little children, they have to be taught to hate because, of, yeah, y'all pull that completely out of context, curate it, drop it in the social structure category. See, Miss Hamer was not about racism. No, did you lift that out of that longer conversation where she said these people, 
their approach didn't have race involved. It was innocent like children. Why, yes. Well, you know what we did? We got the, the damn whole speech. Because we see what y'all doing. You cherry pick comments to fit your narrative. You do it with Polly Murray. You do it with Fannie Lou Hamer. And then you give yourself awards for doing it. And then we suppose somewhere, oh, that's good. Let me read that. No, I'm going to break the chain that link my ideas to yours. And I'm going to listen to my ancestors without interpreters. Mr. Hamer goes on. She says, watch this. Oh, my God. She says, it was, I felt sometimes, you know, well, we would go in at a night, at night, because they had a two-weeks program at what they call a promenade or something like that. And, and we would go in and sit down. Then when the president would come in at night to seal this friendship, whether it was a man or a woman, you know, he'd kiss them on each side, kiss them on one side, and then kiss them on the other side. If a man would kiss a man here, you would hear all kinds of things but they paid no attention. I, I was really proud to see that kind of honesty in men sealing the relationship of men, you know? Dave Chappelle, just for a minute, footnote, very quickly, because y'all thought we were going to talk about it today. Why? <laughs> you get that caught up in a cat who is clearly trolling all of y'all and laughing about, it ain't even about the subject he was talking about. What has happened, whether he intended to or not, and I tend to think he was, but what has happened is the, the spotlight is burning hot white hot on how quickly we get caught up arguing spectacle in popular culture and the delivery system could be lbgtq could be transgender and the very real challenges and realities that human suffering uh, that, that that emerges in those uh formations i won't say communities because to, to be a community there has to be shared culture shared ideas share and that's clearly just not the case we're talking about demographic categories there's no shared black culture in that regard and we have to think about that that's why the governance formation is very important but the point i'm trying to make is miss hamer just took you past all of that and said they come in and kiss cheek to cheek and she said if a man kiss a man in america this gonna be a problem in other words y'all gonna start arguing she said here and then miss hamer says standing in the governance standing in cultural meaning making fanny lou hamer says i really was proud to see that kind of honesty in men sealing the friendship of men you know come on now we're gonna argue about foolishness Oh, we're going to talk about relationships. But the first thing you got to do is turn the static down in that social structure and start asking who you are to each other and, importantly, who you have been, why nobody showed you who you have been. So if you're going to start about solving human problems, you can start with the cultural solutions that you created before this static began to inject itself. Because one thing about whiteness, it will survive. Oh, yeah. Black Lives Matter, protest, voter registration. Oh, not I. I will survive. <laughs> in other words, whiteness will reform itself. This is the work of Karen Fields and them, race craft. They write about this. They talk about this. Anyway, I'm going to wind this up. Miss Hamer says this. Oh, and I, won't, and, and I won't go to another. There's another book that writes about this, but they're commenting on Fannie Lou Hamer. She says, I, went, I would go out to, and remember now, she's from the country. Miss Hamer said, I would go out into what the continental Africans at the time, even people now refer to as the bush, staying in the city. She said, I'm going around Guinea. I go out in the country, the bush. They she said, I see these women. They got a pail of water in one hand, pail of water in another hand, and a pail of water on their head. Miss Hamer said, that's how my mama used to be. And then I sat down and they boiled green peanuts. I said, shit. In fact, let me just use, let Miss Hamer say it for herself. Miss Hamer, oh my God, is it in here? 
Oh, oh, here we go. Here we go. Miss Hamer said. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Miss Hamer said this. And I just thought that I just thought the signature Ray was one of the most fascinating guys I ever met. When he was talking, I couldn't understand French. But Bob Moses and also Jim Foreman were steady translating. They got that. They got that ebonic. Steady translating. And we could understand what they were saying. The whole thing. When I would go out with what we call the rural area here, we go out there and there was always something we had in common. Africa, here's the sentence. Africa to me, before I left, was like going on Greasy Street in Rueville. And so the interviewer said, like, is that right? Ms. Hamer said, you know, just like, and then the white guy says, you were at home? Ms. Hamer said, yes. You know, it was just like, I got friends over there and I could argue with them and we didn't know what each other was talking about, governance. She said, but you know, we could communicate. Governance, cultural meaning making. And I loved it, she says. I really loved every bit of it. But one thing I thought about while I was there, I thought about just like I'm living here in the United States, some of my people could have been left and are living there. And I can't understand them. And they don't know me. And I don't know them because all we had was taken away from us. And I became kind of angry. I felt the anger of why this had to happen to us. We were so stripped and robbed of our background. We wind up with nothing, you know? Because after we got here, we were, in a sense, neither white nor black, and that put us in the center of being Negroes. Now, by black, she talking about African. The American Negro. This is why the genius, the brilliant fire, my, my friend, Eddie Gloud, in his book, Begin Again, the latest to write about the genius of James Baldwin, a genius who I feel like is almost like as a Yikwe Arma has written in his book, 2000 Season, it's like rainwater emptying into the desert. All that genius trying to think through a trick bag. Miss Hamer told you in a phrase, we neither white nor African. We Negroes. And when you become a Negro, what is that? <laughs> that is something that from its conception can't be fixed. I don't care how brilliantly you interrogate a project 1619, 1619 is 1776, 1776 is 1492. In office hours on Monday, we will talk about Indigenous Peoples Day and why this whole thing has to be fixed because if these used to go back to Africa, Ms. Hamer done told y'all, look, if you gonna shut it down, I'd be glad to go. I know where I can go. I have friends over there. You, I don't know because see, y'all got a real habit of outing each other. So she goes on and says this. She says, you know, we just don't know any more about ourselves than the names the slave owners gave us. And, you know, that was a real crime. I knew that my mother, my grandmother was a slave, but I don't know any parts of Africa. But this don't mean now what I'm saying that if I ever get a chance that I'm going back to Africa. This is critical. She said, I'm going to stay in this country because I'm a part of this country. But I just think that somewhere along the line, it would have been a nice thing if they had made slaves out of us, but still kept up with this background of ours, because you can't never tell. Miss Gintz over there could have come from a king. A family was a king in Africa. And that's the part that I feel upset about, that here I had people somewhere here, and they might have been my real people. I had a guest visit me once from Sierra Leone, Africa, and she kept pointing out that you act just like my mother. You act just like my mother. And it's something that about it that binds you. This is Fannie Hamer near the end of her life, still developing that consciousness. And I won't go on because there's a lot more about it in here. But what she's saying, what she ends up, she's saying, you know, I'm not going. I'm here, but I'm not here because of a love for here. 
I'm here because of historical circumstance. And this is what Baldwin is really getting at. I just wish he had spent a little bit more time in Africa. There's a whole Baldwin thing about Baldwin in Africa that we should talk about another time. But the point is that Miss Hamer not obsessed with getting people to love her or like her. And when she finally connects, her expansion is really expanded. But I want to end with this. She, of course, comes back. And what happens? December of that same year, Fanny Lou Hamer, SNCC, Freedom, the Freedom Singers, and, this, and the uh, Freedom Democrats are invited to New York City. They're, they're raising funds because they're going to go in January 1965. They are going to Washington. Why? Because they're going to challenge the United States Congress and say, you can't seat these white segregationist Congress people from Mississippi because they come from a state where most of us can't vote and they are against us. So as they're touring the Northeast, they in New York and they come and the speech is reproduced in this book. The speech comes from December the 20th, 1964. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Y'all heard that, right? We heard that Fanny Lou Hamer phrase, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. How many people knew that Mrs. Hamer spoke at the Williams Institutional CME Church. Y'all know some of y'all CME. Y'all know they call it now the Christian Methodist. It used to be the Colored Methodist, the first um, organized Christian uh, denomination founded by Africans in the South. The AME Church, the second one was uh, Morris Bound, second bishop, but they were founded in Philly. This one was founded in, in, in the South. She spoke in Harlem December 20th, 1964 with this dude. Mm. Malcolm X, Fannie Lou Hamer, the Freedom Singers, together in Harlem, and after Miss Hamer speaks, Malcolm gets up, and between Miss Hamer speaking and Malcolm speaking, before that, the Freedom Singers sing a new song that they wrote. You want to know about it? You can go get the SNCC stuff, but I like—I'll I'll give you this point of entry. Gerald Horn has a book called "Mal Mal in Harlem" because that night, Malcolm X calls for a Mal Mal in Harlem. Mal Mal says, "Now nah, violent stuff is cool, but we need some—we need some turn up Negroes. We need a Mal Mal all over the country. We need a Mal Mal in the South. The Mal Mal, the Kenyan Land Freedom Army. These the Negroes who fought against the British in Kenya. Now, there's a whole backstory to that, but here's the thing. Here we go. Says. Uh, let me see. So, so while now, now we're talking about, let me go back a year, December, uh, a year, exactly a year, 1963, December, 1963, because why the African countries are fighting their way out of colonialism. And guess who's starting to pay attention? The Africans of the United States, a new generation, because we've always paid attention to those black movements. That's why Haiti was so important to us. That's why these movements have always been so important to us. The Italian-Ethiopian War in 1896 was important to us. 1934, you have Africans around the world paying attention as Italy invades Ethiopia. So we've always had it. Here's the next iteration, December 1963. Gerald writes, yet the message African-Americans continue to derive from Kenya was one of militancy. 
including an example inspired by the man who was widely seen in Washington as London as the vector of communist ambitions. So as Susan Williams is writing, the social structure is against these Africans. They're against Nkrumah in Ghana. They will develop uh, intrigue and make sure that people still fighting people. That's the backstory that you wouldn't see in a documentary like My Name is Pauli Murray because it's not important to the social structure. They're going to be in Kenya trying to fight the Mau Mau and collusion with these other white countries and whatever. And now very carefully, however, they're trying to cultivate diplomatic relations. So once the Kenyans are in power, they reach out and say, you know, we're going to help you all. We're going to take some of your students and bring them over to the United States and train them. And maybe some of them won't come back. Or if they come back, they'll be agents for us. But if they stay here, we can continue to develop them. One of those cats is Barack Obama. I'm a senior. Y'all go read about it. Then you, I mean, they, they're sending their tentacles out, but the young people and others like Miss Hamer, now nah, we got a relationship to these black people who are different. So December 1963, Ogenga Odenga, who is Yomo Kenyatta, who ends up as the prime minister, his right-hand man, he comes to the United States because they're courting them now. December 1963, Kennedy, no, Kennedy's brains have been blown out. Johnson, is bringing him in. Why? Because they, they, because Kennedy was doing this too. You want to curate diplomacy. Meanwhile, if I pull the book JFK in Africa, if I can find my name, there's a picture on the front cover of JFK on the phone in the Oval Office with his hand like this because he's getting the news from the CIA that they've killed Patrice Lumumba in 1961. In other words, y'all was in this. Y'all been in this. You're undermining these African governments. So, Oginga Odinga from Kenya comes. On a Saturday evening in late December 1963, James Foreman, a veteran civil rights worker, and his colleagues visited him at his hotel. So these SNCC young people visit Oginga in Atlanta because they know, they know that these white boys in Atlanta have been lying to them. Miss Hamer found out the next year when, and I didn't part I didn't read, but I told y'all about, she's there and she starts asking the people in Guinea, well, what do y'all think about us? And they said, we thought everything was fine. What do you mean? Then they show them, the literature and Bob Moses and them and Miss Hamer looking at these pictures of black people and white people getting along in America. They say, this that propaganda. Oh my God, they lied to y'all like they lied to us. What the hell is going on? And Miss Hamer then says in another interview, they've interviewed her about this, it might even be in her autobiography that she wrote. They say, well, Miss Hamer, what else in Africa? She says, we saw these peace corps. They sent these white Peace Corps workers. They were on the same flight we were on. And when I got there, I said, how y'all going halfway around the world to fix somebody else? And you ain't fixed it in the place we live. Oh, Miss Hamer was, was dealing cards. You understand? So here we go. Going back to 1963. The young people have gone to meet this Kenyan leader, SNCC people. They're in Atlanta. They know these guys are spreading propaganda, but this is governance. They're talking to each other. James Foreman, a veteran civil rights worker, again, reading in the uh, Making the Black Revolutionaries, and his colleagues visited Oginga at his hotel, brought him gifts, sang freedom songs, and chanted Uhuru. That's in Kiswahili. Uhuru, freedom, with him. Inspired by that visit, Foreman said, we went to a title house restaurant, white restaurant, for coffee. 17 of us were arrested in protest of Jim Crow regulations. Some went limp. Foreman added proudly and had to be dragged to the paddy wagon. This is a quote, so forgive the slur. And some were bruised when dragged, period. This led to a new stage in the evolution of their militancy, writes Gerald Horn. Horn says an irked U.S. State Department noted that the protesters, quote, were already alerted, had already alerted wire services to plans and had available for distribution a handbill entitled Why Do We Pick It? while referencing the fact that African dignitaries have been snubbed. The tactful Odinga made no comment while the Kenya papers, 
all carried the front page stories about the arrest of the 17 demonstrators he inspired. So in Kenya, they report these black people tried to meet with Oginga and they got arrested. They lying to us about what they doing to our people. In the space between December 1963 and December 1964, when the freedom singers from SNCC came to Harlem with Van Luamer on the same platform as Malcolm X, they had written a song about it. And the song goes like this. We went down to the peach tree manor to see Oginga, Odinga. The police said, what's the matter to see Oginga, Odinga? The police, he looked mighty hard at Oginga, Odinga. He got scared because he was a ex-mau-mau -mau to see Oginga, Odinga. Oginga, Odinga, Oginga, Odinga, Oginga, Odinga of Kenya. Who? Oginga, Odinga, Odinga, Odinga. So they sing the song and then they get to the chorus. Freedom now. These Mississippi, Alabama, Southern Black students are now internationalized. And when that night in Harlem, they performed a song they wrote in the time between they went down there and got arrested. And then and then, the, and then the, the second course is important because Oginga didn't do this. Horn told you. He's diplomat. They want stuff from America. He ain't gonna say them, but back home, the papers are reporting it. This what happened. This what happened. This what happened. Second verse. Oginga said, this to the white people, Oginga said, look here what's going on down in Selma. If you white folks don't straighten up, I'm going to call Joe Mo Kenyatta. Who? Oginga, Odinga, Oginga, Odinga. In other words, this ain't your daddy's nonviolent movement, Lyndon. This brother came from Africa like, I see all this. This is very nice. This propaganda. Let me ask you a question. What's going on down in Selma, bro? Oh, everything is... Hold on. If you white folks don't straighten up, I'm coming with the heat. Because there's a world out there that y'all want to recolonize. It's no small thing when a prime minister of a Caribbean country says, you can, you can keep the queen. Next time she visit, you ain't in charge, baby. Not even ceremoniously. Ta-ta. You're sending a warning shot. They don't like that kind of thing. Why? Because even in today's New York Times, if I can find it quick, I'll show it to you. If I can't find it quick, I'll just reference it in passing. But I think I can find it quick enough. Saturday, October the 9th. Yes. This, let me see. Is it today's paper? I'm pretty sure it is. If it's not, I'll just give you the headline. Oh, maybe it's not this one. I was reading so many different things. Yeah, no. Okay, good. It might be actually if it's in this one, then I know we got something. You know, I know we're winding. I'm gonna wind up with this because Malcolm, I gotta get to Malcolm and go back to Mrs. Hamer. Uh no, I guess not. That's too bad. There was a there was a headline about what's going on in Australia. Internationally, what you're seeing is the whiteness of these uh elected bodies in countries that have increasing numbers of non-whites. Australia is one. And people are complaining. This formation we live in in the United States is just part of an international challenge. But let me let me get too let me get too deep in that. Because when 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 these young people from SNCC write this song and say what's going on down in Selma, what they're telling you is we have ties beyond the United States. At the same time, the United States is working with other countries in Europe to undermine these emerging 
African countries. At least they can stabilize an international uh, bourgeois. Now, remember, now, that's what we, we uh, a couple of months ago, we looked at Charlie Cobb's article from Black World, Negro Digest, notes on returning home, because some of those SNCC folk end up moving to Tanzania. So, Malcolm, let's go to Malcolm. I think it's Malcolm. Yeah, let's go to Malcolm. Malcolm, Miss Hamer gets up first. She gives the speech with Miss Van Lou Hamer. In fact, let me pull Miss Hamer because I love putting this good. Because even in, in the piece, in the recording you played from the transcript, there's a little moment in there. Maybe you can play it in a second if you can cue it up while I'm while I'm looking at this, where the interviewer asks Miss yeah. Hamer about Malcolm. Right? You got it. Okay. Good. 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 That's good. All, right, all right. Hold on. Yo, yeah, yeah, no, 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 not yet. I just want to make sure. This is the, this is a speech. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Miss Hamer has come back from Africa, December 20th, 1964. She opens and says, my name is Fannie Lou Hamer, and I exist at 626 East Lafayette Street in Rueville, Mississippi. She always gives her address first. <laughs> she says, the reason I say exist is because we're excluded from everything in Mississippi, but the tombs and the graves. That's why it is called that. Instead of the land of the free and the home of the brave, it is called in Mississippi the land of the tree and the home of the grave. Then she goes through and she gives the testimony of what happened to her that we just heard, a version of that. And then, uh, by the way, it was Anel Ponder who said, I ain't going to say, sir, because I don't know you like that. And then she says, and you can hear this long sob story. You know, it takes time. For 300 years, Ms. Hamer said, we've been giving them time. And I've been tired so long. Now I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. And we want to change. We want to change in this society in America because you see, we can no longer ignore the facts and getting our children to sing. Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light that so proudly we hail? Miss Hamer asked, what do we have to hail here? The only truth, the only truth is that the truth is the only thing to free us. And you know, this whole society is sick. And to prove how sick it was, when we was in Atlantic City challenging the National Convention, when I was testifying before the Credentials Committee, I was cut off because they hate to see what they've been doing all this time and knowing all this time, and that's the truth. She says, I can't understand how it's out of their power to protect people in Mississippi. They can't do that. But when a white man is killed in the Congo, they send people there. Oh, and then she goes on. She starts naming the cities she's been to. She said, you're not free here in Harlem. I go into a lot of big cities. I've got, I've, and I've got my first city to go to where this man wasn't standing with his feet on the black man's neck. And it's time for you to wake up because you see a lot of people say, oh, they're afraid, oh, they're afraid of integration. But the white man is not afraid of integration, not with his kids. He's afraid of his wife's kids because he got them all over the place. Because mm. some kids just might be my second cousin. Oh, no. See, y'all got to read the speech. See, they curate family Hamer to make it like a pair of earrings or a bracelet on the imaginary American democracy. But Miss Hamer, oh, Miss Hamer, like Ida B. Wells, if y'all want to talk about it, we can talk about it. Then Malcolm gets up. After Fannie Lou Hamer, page 105 of Malcolm X Speaks. Y'all can get this anywhere. Uh, but I prefer you, obviously, you get it. Go to Narrative and look at the curated list of independent black bookstores. If you're in D.C. or if you're online, go to Sankofa. They're my people. Miss Fannie Lou Hamer. Ms. Now, Malcolm gets up and says, Miss Hamer, he says, I couldn't help but be impressed at the outstart when the Freedom Singers were singing the song Oginga Odinga. Because Ogingo Odinga is one of the foremost freedom fighters on the African continent. At the time he visited Atlanta, Georgia, I think he was the Minister of Home Affairs in Kenya. But since Kenya became a republic last week, and Jomo Kenyatta ceased being the prime minister and became the president, the same person you're singing about, Ogingo Odinga, is now Kenyatta's vice president. He's the number two man in the Kenya government. 
he goes on to say he's not nonviolent, but he's free. Then you hear them all cheering because y'all can get this recording. The warm up uh, after Fannie Lou Hamer, have you talked about? Then he goes on to say, not only in Mississippi, Alabama, but right here in New York City, you and I can best learn how to get real freedom by studying how Kenyatta brought it to his people in Kenya. He goes on and he says, when I listen to Miss Hamer, a black woman, she could be my mother, my sister, my daughter, describe what they've done to her in Mississippi. I ask myself, how in the world can we ever expect to be respected as men when we will allow something like that to be done to our women and do nothing about it? How can you and I be looked upon as men with black women being beaten and nothing being done about it? Black children, black babies being beaten and nothing being done about it. No, we don't deserve to be recognized and respected as men as long as our women can be brutalized in the manner that this woman described and nothing being done about it. But we sit around singing we shall overcome. We need a Mau Mau. He talks about when he was in Africa. He talks about coming back to the United States. Then he starts saying this. I'll end with this from Malcolm part, this, this Malcolm part. He says, the senator from Mississippi is over the Judiciary Committee. He's in Washington, D.C., as Ms. Hamer has pointed out, illegally. Every senator from a state where our people are deprived of the right to vote, they're in Washington, D.C., illegally. This country is run, this country is a country whose governmental system is run by committees. Then he starts talking about all this seniority. He says, the committee chairman occupies the position by dint of his seniority. Eastland is over the Judiciary Committee because he has more seniority than any other senator under the same poster on that committee. The ancient mariner, the ancient farmer, Chuck Grassley, going to run for re-election in Iowa. He's a million years old, but he's <laughs> not going to give that up. And what Malcolm shows is he said there's no South in America. It's all South. Forget the Mason-Dixon line. Do you know who's propping up those segregationists as Ms. Hamer and these young people are here fighting about? The, the mayor of New York, the governor. And then he starts, Ms. Hamer then laid it out. Malcolm gets the pitch that she teed up. And she, he says, if y'all don't get them the right to vote, if y'all don't give us the right to vote, no problem. Ms. Hamer, I promise this to you now. We will have an American Mau Mau. But he, don't, he didn't even recognize with the deacons, they already had it. By the way, Ms. Hamer respects them very much. That's going to mean something in about maybe 60 seconds. He goes on to say, he starts naming the black Democrats in New York. He says, propping up these segregationists. Then he names the black Democrats in New York. He said, why don't y'all tomorrow, this is what we're going to do in New York. We're going to ask them, do you support these segregationists? No. Then why are you still, why are you acting like they're your friends? Everybody in Congress, Joe Manchin is being difficult, but if we continue to dialogue, okay, you support him. You in the white nationalist party. I'm in the Congressional Black Caucus. Yeah, but he's a soft white nationalist and you ain't called him every name but a, but a child of God. Why are you defending him? I'm not defending him. Sure you are. Go back to see Malcolm X. Well, that's Malcolm. No, I'm sorry. Miss Hamer was there too, huh? Yeah. Y'all stop reading these books. Why? Because here's what Catherine Clifford, I'm sorry, Kate Clifford Larson has to say about that meeting. I want y'all to hear this. This is the brand new book and it's going to win a million awards. You think it ain't? Watch this. <laughs> But but I, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Um, I should say a million social structure awards. But some of you Negroes going to get those awards, too. I know how it works. Believe me. That's why it's so refreshing and to be a newbie and to be a narrative where, you know, we're free. So anyway, here we go. I want y'all to hear this. On December the 20th, uh, on December 20th, we're talking about 1964, Hamer shared a stage with Malcolm X at the Williams Institutional CME Church in Harlem during an afternoon rally sponsored by the Freedom Party. Malcolm had met SNCC activists John Lewis and Donald Harris during their extended tour of Africa in the fall. And that's true. They met in East Africa. John Lewis and Donald Harris decided to stay after Ms. Hamer and went back. And I know y'all heard that at uh, John Lewis's funeral. Bill Clinton mentioned it. 
when he was a, oh no, no, Bill Clinton stood up over John Lewis and said, our Stokely picked another way, but John, John stayed faithful. Okay, you keep trying to make black people into earrings in your white establishment and you think you can use John Lewis. John Lewis was in Africa. John met Malcolm X. And according to this woman here, might be the one to extend the invitation. He was, now this is what, this is what she writes about um, uh, Malcolm X. This is what Larson writes about Kate Clifford Lawson in this new book on Fannie Lou Hamer, Walk With Me, writes about Malcolm X. And she's writing, of course, from 1965, no, no, 1953, oh, no, no, 1898, oh, no, no, 2021. Quote, he, Malcolm, was a rising black nationalist who had recently cut ties with Elijah Muhammad, uh, Muhammad spelled M-U-H-A-M-M-E-D. Get a copy, editor, A-N-I-E. Okay, the leader of the Nation of Islam in America. Muhammad advocated racial segregation, shunned political activism and voting, and practiced nonviolent protest. Malcolm quit the organization to establish his own Muslim group that advocated for complete separatism and the migration of African Americans to Africa. The migration of, who? Is there a footnote in here? He was a relentless critic of the civil rights movement and his leaders, including Martin Luther King Jr. He disavowed nonviolence and supported armed confrontation. The NAACP and other civil rights groups rejected his extremist and black nationalist rhetoric. It was curious that Hamer and Malcolm X came together that day in Harlem, given their diametrically opposed positions on nonviolence and segregation. Could you play that clip instead of talking to the interpreter and let's let our ancestor talk to us without interpreters? Thank you, Prof. But we're going to ask Miss. Hamer about Malcolm X. The people in your movement think about uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Oh, first that. His approach to yeah. Hold on. Well, uh, no, this is good. I, I know. just say in Mississippi because people, it is people have different uh, feelings about uh, Dr. King. They feel that uh, he's accepting too slow rate of progress? Well, to me, it is somewhat slow. But Dr. King's organization do have some great people like Mrs. Septima P. Clark, the book to book Echoes in My Soul, is a great woman, and there's quite a few other people that I admire in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and respect. But uh, I take this stand with any person, uh, a person that was born in the middle class that have never had to suffer. You know, he can afford to take things maybe easier than I can. And all I've ever done was suffer. And, and uh, in fact, a person is born in the middle class and have always had things somewhat decent. He can't make a decision for me because he's back there don't know how I feel. You know, when you mentioned middle class and middle class Negroes, I'm thinking of Leroy Jones, who is middle class Negro but is one of the most uh, violent of the young Negro writers and lecturers. How, how do you, your people feel about him? Well, uh, in Mississippi, it's not too many people know Leroy Jones, although I know Leroy Jones. But it's a wonder every Negro in the United States didn't feel exactly like Leroy Jones. It's a lot that happened to us that we should all, you know, if we wanted to feel like that, but I just, I've never been, you know, my parents brought me up as Christian people, and I believe strongly in Christianity. And uh, to me, if I hate you because you hate me, I'm no better than you are. And I don't hate a person because they hate me. I'll try to free that person too. 
Are there any people you see uh, among the people who are speaking for the Negro, and apart from the people you've mentioned in your own organization, for instance, Louis Lomax or James Baldwin, or people like that, that you regard as being significant now for the future? Uh, yes, I think uh, James Baldwin is a great man. I have great respect for James Baldwin. Are you hopeful of the future uh, for your party politically? Yes, I'm hopeful for the future of this party because um, all across this country, we have young people that's very aware of what's going on in this country. Your membership is largely young people. Hold on. So um, that was the end. That, that was the end. All right. Let me let me back up okay. and, and tell. I mean, but I. I'm glad it started there because yes. you know it reiterated what you talked about with Martin Luther King, like, and we're we're confronting that today with, you know, who speaks for us, who's who are our leaders, they're folk in the streets that are having a different experience, but everybody that's speaking for us right now are, are millionaires, uh, who might have well, come from, well, who are being curated as if they're speaking for us, right? But they might have come from humble beginnings, you know, might have lived across the street from their you know, from their daddy and the daddy didn't know him or might have been raised in, you know, very poor beginnings and what have you. But now they're millionaires uh, and they are, you know, getting booed at borders and stuff. All right. Let me, uh, but the, but the, the Leroy Jones thing, though, I thought yes. was very interesting. Well, let me let me uh, back up while you're talking. Let me. No, Joe, Jones, I'm glad you raised that because, of course, we know, of course, uh, Baba Amiri Baraka. Now an ancestor, we knew uh, that was the name he was being referred to by then, uh, Leroy Jones. And of course, he came from a middle class background. When you read his autobiography, I was just rereading the autobiography the other day, some pieces out of it, the autobiography of Leroy Jones. He, you know, he came out of that Howard University, Air Force, this kind of thing. But Barack, you see where the white boy poking? That's was terrifying. I'm terrifying. Here we go. She like, yeah. See, the genius of Fannie Lou Hamer, I was raised Christian, ways of knowing. I don't hate you, you hate me. But before she is, she slipped it in and said, you know, not a lot of people in Mississippi know Leroy. I know Leroy Jones. And, you know, it's a wonder. Everybody, every black, every Negro in the country don't feel like it. You know, I'm letting you know, bro. I see you. And I'm going to talk to my people using this interview. I think the ancestors wanted me to play that because the computer teed that up. But let's. Uh, no, that's that's beautiful. No, But it needed to be played because Miss Hamer is you, you see. But you also see how it's being curated. You heard that page from Larson, right? If you just read Walk With Me, you think, you know. Her relationship with Malcolm X, but you heard some of her words, some of Malcolm's words, and now we can hear hear her words again. Malcolm X. Malcolm X was one of the best friends I ever had. A remarkable man. Oh, he was a great man. In fact, I had invited Malcolm X to come to Mississippi, and he was supposed to come to Mississippi on Monday and was killed that Sunday. Now, he had belonged to the Muslim organization. Is, are the Muslim groups making much progress in the South? They seem mostly to be in the North. Mostly in the North because a whole lot of things that the Muslims stand for, I don't agree with their policies. But I did respect Malcolm X, and Malcolm X was a great man. What, uh, what can you think of that the Muslims advocate that you don't agree with? One of the things is setting up a separate state. You know, just give the Negroes a state. They want a state, you know, set up. With, uh, it would have to be more than a state for 20 million black people in this country. But just to have so much separation, you know, that uh, we couldn't, you know, we wouldn't have to deal with white on no terms. And 
Let's put us out, I would I would say, on a deserted island. And what we had thought of with a lot of white people in the country, we last about uh, two days. Mm. Yes, and just just be wiped off the map. Because you see, I, I take this stand that I don't see all people as bad. If we didn't have some good white people, it wouldn't be anybody standing up, you know, trying to help bring about a change and make things better, not only for the Negro, but it would benefit every human being in this country if we were just free. Mm. Pause right there. Yep. Perfect. Now, see what you hear there is a rare moment where the social structure guy is keep trying to, you know, because this comes out king or oh, about Malcolm X. Then she says, "One of the best friends I ever had." Oh, now what she's doing is deliberately shutting it. And she ain't know that guy law before he was killed. But what what I'm not gonna do? You ain't gonna set me up against Malcolm. You know the best friends I ever had, but you only knew him. And you be quiet. Cause you ain't even done enough research. You try to get me to, and then, and then she says, "Well, I don't, you don't agree with everything." Like, what don't you agree with? But he trying to get her to go with the violence. She said, "No." And then she gives a <laughs> tactical answer. I ain't. I know where you want me to go. What I don't like is like the separate state. Why? And remember now, this may be as you speculated. We talked about uh, back in the summer why Misha Green doesn't get season two. She leaked a map where those map that black land was the same map as the Republic of New Africa, which was founded after Malcolm was assassinated in Detroit by people, Richard Henry, Milton Henry, the Republic of New Africa, uh, and Kichi Taifa and all them, Chokwe Lumumba, who signed out of Mayor Jackson, say less in terms of Freedom Farms, which Fannie Lou Hamer started in those years before she made transition to feed black people and other people too, white people were there, white farmers. She, they got all this land, they were developing this. If you go to Jackson, Mississippi right now, Freedom Farms are still going under a different orientation because they're pushing, they said, we're gonna free Mississippi, free the land when you hear. But what she says there is, eh, yeah, I guess it had to be more than one state because it's 20 million of us. She talking about four different levels. This white dude, then she said, yeah, Go ahead, and then and then he tried to push her again, and then she was like, "But then we'll we'll be wiped off the map. We'll be wiped because, off the map because the white violence would not allow exactly us. I mean, because we've already seen summer nineteen nineteen red summer, uh, Greenwood, Rosewood. You know when when and and she talks about that as a girl. White people cannot allow for black people to have progress. They get they get very angry and they poison her family's farm, That's her right. farm animal. So she experienced this firsthand. She That's knows right. what, you know, cause she also knows we would thrive. That, well, see, and, and, and that's it. She's that, what she gave you exactly. That's it, prop. She did not give him a philosophical difference. The closest you get to say, I was raised Christian. I judge people based on what they do. She gave him a tactical answer. As you say, based on my experience, but she succeeded. And then she ends with, why well, can't we just all be free? In other words, I'm not trying, what did Nina Simone say in Mississippi? Goddamn, you don't have to live next to me. Just give me my equality. Everybody knows about Mississippi. In other words, Miss Hamer not asking to live at your house. She and Pat were good with their two girls. By the way, her daughter had a baby. Their daughter got sick. She took the daughter to Mount Bayou, the hospital. Time back to Emmett Till, TRM Howard. Remember the Mount Bayou, the all black town. They got a hospital there. Found out the girl had a tumor. She drove her to Memphis. It was too far away. That by the time they got there, the child it was in. She couldn't do anything for her, and she passed away. Right, and and Fannie Lou Hamer, they say she never really got over that. But I'm raising that to say that 
to your to your observation. Miss Hamer knew we would thrive. Miss Hamer knew that just like the Prime Minister Barbados understands we would thrive. But tactically, I can't, you know, I can't agree with the Muslim, but you're trying to make me fight them. I'm not fighting them now. And then you can wait 50 years and Kate Larson can narrate it like they were more. He was the best friend I ever had, Kate. I ain't see that quote in here now. I'm not dogging her because it's a long book and she's got some other nuanced readings. But that page is indefensible. But maybe where you just put us, we can end. I just want to make one more comment on that because this is what you what you raised. This thing we're in now, and the nationalized elections are revealing this. Whiteness is going to continue, and it's going to continue as it kills white people because. It is the foundational logic of this particular settler project within a larger field of capitalism, within the larger field of racial capitalism. The United States of America has a unique take that is part of the other takes, but you can see how the, 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 the project Ms. Hamer is imagining has not yet even come into view in America. And why? When Malcolm, sharing a stage with Fannie Hamer, parenthetically, at the end of his speech, he invites Mrs. Hamer and the Freedom Singers to the Audubon Ballroom later that night, and they go. Because th this is a, this is a kind of mixed crowd, uh, about a third white at this church in Harlem. They then leave there and go to the Audubon, and they do another speech. Except this is an all-black audience. I'm like, come on now. And the Malcolm's speech we have, uh, Ms. Hamer's speech was edited out of the Malcolm X speech at the second speech she gave. But anyway, back to the point. Malcolm makes the point in that, that night in the speech he gives, following Ms. Hamer, where he folds it all in, what she's talking about, he says, the thing propping up those segregationists in the South are the people in their party in the North. They're all the same party. Fast forward to 2021. You're seeing the same thing now. And the urban Democrats are in New York, in California, and all these places. Man. Okay, are those people Democrats everywhere? Is there a two-party system? Malcolm says the wolf and the sheep. Now that you know that there's a there's a distinction between the two, but white nationalism is being protected because the hardcore white nationalists have had a deal with this country since they created the federal structure. Since 1787, when they, when they ratified the, the final structure, the federal constitutions, amendments notwithstanding, the white nationalists in this country will either control the federal apparatus or, in other words, dictate to it how it will be uh, created, if you saw Handmaid's Tale, you know you're preparing yourself for what's going to happen in a few months when they overturn Roe. It's going to be the next step. And in fact, well, I, I, we, maybe next week we'll talk about. It. I really want to get into this. There's a there's a uh, there's a pollster who has been sounding the alarm for a long time. He got fired out of one job, and now he's like the gold standard pollster, not Nate Silver and them. It's somebody else who's writing and talking about how. The Democratic Party is about to take a huge L in 2022 and 2024 and how it's probably going to set the next decade up. In other words, there's nothing they can do to stop what's coming because they're not stopping what's coming, which is Malcolm's point. If you got voter suppression and you can't get cinema and mansion or crap these 50 recalcitrant white nationalists, including the Negro white nationalists out of South Carolina, uh, to enshrine voting rights, then what you are setting up is the next stage in their apartheid state. We're not going forward. We're going back to the 19-teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s when Ms. Hamer had to pay a poll tax and interpret the Constitution. They know the only way they can win elections is to shrink that voter base because now the demographics are against them. 
And so what Ms. Hamer has previewed can't be folded into, I don't care whether it's Larson, Blaine, uh, any anybody writing, can't be folded into, and this is why if we work harder, we can realize American democracy. Y'all keep running, trying to run Ms. Hamer into a brick wall. She done told y'all what it is, and her thinking is beyond the United States. Now, one thing I, we were talking about before we uh, came on, uh, Karen, I'm going to see if I can pull this up because I thought I, I pulled up the, because I couldn't find my physical copy. Here it is. This was in October 6th, uh, uh, New York Times. In other nations, who other white countries who pay for child care, here are the numbers. In Norway, this is how much the government spends for child care on toddlers every year. $29,726. Per child. Per child. Iceland, 24-4. Finland, 23-3. Denmark, 23-1. Notice anything between Norway, Finland, Iceland, Denmark? All white countries with a few non-whites. Now, Germany is the first all-white country with a little bit higher percentage of non-whites. 18,000 they pay a year, 18,600. Sweden, 18,000. Austria, 12,8. Slovenia, 11,6. New Zealand, 10,3. Then Spain, 9,000. Chile, 8,000. Lithuania, 8,000. Australia, 8,000. Hungary, 7,000. Israel, 3,300. The United States, per child, per year, $500. Now, you know why? Because in order to spend more money, and the Prime Minister from Barbados and told you globally they got it, the people in this country, like Cory Bush and them, and told you locally they got it. The reason they don't spend it is because your children would get it too. Meaning what? Those homogenous white countries are not fighting a white nationalist war. So we're going to take care of all these babies. When it comes to the babies of the United States, when the black and brown babies, them 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 black and brown babies, no humans involved, but your baby too. I would rather my baby die than one of them babies get it too. And if you don't think that's true, don't argue with me, don't argue with Professor Hunter, you argue with the damn numbers. How do you fight? How do you fight a force that is willing to eat its own and kill themselves to stay in power. That, like you said, they're willing to have their babies die so that your baby's not eating. I'd rather my baby die than your baby eat instead of all babies can eat, right? All babies can eat. How do you fight that? Well, you, first of all, you stop doing this and singing, oh, say, can you see as your point? Because you're never going to convince white nationalists. They don't, there's nothing you can sing. That's number one. Number two. Pause. Don't convince them that we're human. So we don't have to tell them black lives. Matter. None of that is. Oh, no, never. Stop doing that. Stop mm. it. Or, or not. Or not. Again, not being judgmental. Understand. But we just keep pouring a clean glass of water. Because I'm not going to say it. I know it. Just like Miss Miss Hamer with them black baby dolls. And then she went to Africa and said, they ain't even in that head trip. The we she's talking about over there ain't her. But she's saying, I wish I knew. And she's naming people in, in Mississippi who they say, it's like when Richard Pryor went to uh, Africa and came back and said, I ain't using the N-word no more in my routine. Because after I've been over there for a few weeks, I was getting ready to come back and I'm in the hotel. And I said, you know what you didn't see? You didn't see no N-words. And he said, I just started crying. He said, I, I didn't see any N-word. And he said, I seen the guy who's the president of the bank. I said, I go, Willie DeWino. 
damn, that's what he was supposed to be. Mm. Uh, I will make one more Dave Chappelle reference. Uh -oh. People are fighting about what is a clear troll. And y'all can add me. We can talk about the office hours. Come on, we talk about the office hours. Monday. Yeah, Monday. Monday, uh, what, 7 o'clock? 7 p.m. Eastern. 7 p.m. The number, yes, yeah, 7 p.m. In Nubia. In Nubia. In, only in Nubia. But here's the thing. Unless I missed the word count, I think my man used the N-word more in that one than the other four specials together. I'm not sure. But ain't nobody said nothing about the N-word. And I'm like, you know why? Because maybe you think that's who you are. <gasps> you know what I'm saying? I mean, wow. That's very nice. And when I think about the fact that Pacifica, which is in many ways the blueprint, what became NPR, Pacifica, which was founded by a white war resistor, and Miss Hamer came in against the Vietnam War, too. I didn't even get a chance to talk about that, 68, 72, when she's at the Democratic National Convention giving that work to the Democrats, because in 68, after what they did in 64, in 68, they come back with this loyalist Democratic thrust at the, at the uh, convention to break the back of the Mississippi Freedom Democrats. Why? Because they don't like that they can't, they can't control the Mississippi Freedom Democrats because they're bottom up. And she done told you about middle class people in league with white people. And Ms. Hamer in interviews, it's like, these Democrat party, man, I'm kind of, I'm really disappointed in some of them, but then I see what's going on. And she even has smoke for Charles Evers. Because he said, Charles came in riding on his brother's thing. And he said, has, has he been a good mayor? Well, I understand he's gotten some jobs done. She's very tactical in her thinking. I'm not going to categorize everybody all the same, but I am going to think strategically. I said, I have to say this. In 68, against the war. In 72, which tears apart Democratic Party because allows Nixon. 72, just before her last convention, before she makes transition, she is giving that work to the Democratic Party in her critique. But ultimately, what Ms. Hamer is clear about is that you build power locally. She tries that with Head Start. as a book called The Devil Has Slippery Shoes that talks about that history of Head Start in Mississippi. She gets in those federal dollars start coming. She's working to help get black elected officials. She's working to make these people accountable. She's starting the Freedom Farms, buying this land. That Freedom Farms piece, like Nubia, like narrative. Let's build our own while we're doing this initiative and moving this forward. And she's not allowing, even as she's suffering, because... At the end of her life, when she's really sick, you know, Miss Hamer, Pap Hamer, they don't have much. They're trying to raise their grandbabies because her their daughter passed and they had to raise the babies. Like one of the granddaughters is actually an interview with her is in this volume, The Speeches of Family Hamer. You know, she still does not abandon her way of knowing. It's very African, even as she is, is grappling with this through this pain. But the way you defeat these people. If we're going to take the life of Fannie Lou Hamer and the words of Fannie Lou Hamer, you got to tell the truth. You can't shame the devil. I would start to say, tell the truth, shame the devil, but you can't shame the devil. In fact, <laughs> I'm not even going to say what she said about it. Anyway, the point is this. You build the things you can control and you don't err from the standard. The Egyptians said that about my eye. Do not swerve, for you are the standard. You are the balance. So. I think on the anniversary, on the 6th of this month, the 7th anniversary of the Karen Hunter Show, and here we are in class in a place that didn't exist. When you celebrate the 6th anniversary, we want to say not only thank you and congratulations, but that is in the spirit and work of Fannie Lou Hamer. And so uh, I think maybe we'll talk some more about it. You know who I got to get in here. We got to get 
uh, Dr. Belithia Watkins Beatty, who could really walk us through this this work. We get her a narrative, and maybe we can get her to talk oh, about. I'm I'm so excited by all of the people that are coming. Thank you, uh, Cornell West and yes, Dr. Mario Beatty, Dr. Yes. Sinata Amen, who's about to start a series. Yes, I mean it's just again, it's a gathering, it's a collection of people who are about this life, and so yes. that's, that's the great thing. We don't need everybody. We don't. So, no, no, no. We don't need everybody. No, don't you know, need people who are about this life. So uh, I just want to say thank you uh, again. Um, my head hurts from from just all of the things. Now I got to read. And I don't know how you and uh, Paulie Murray read all of them books. But every time I pick up a book that you've recommended, breadcrumbs just fall out of them. <laughs> and it leaves me on a on a trail that I'm like, when do I get to this point? You know, oh, wow, I don't yeah. have the millions of books that you have, but no, um, no. you're amazing. Uh, no. And everybody who's with us, you know, we can't do this without y'all. So no, thank you. we need y'all. Um, Nubia. Yeah. And at, and at some point, you know, y'all who are only seeing it on YouTube, this, this is going to go away from here. Yeah. But we're going to continue to do the work where the people are working to do and it. You saw yeah. what happened when, uh, when, when Facebook went down for five minutes, I just laughed because I don't have a Facebook account. Me either. I mean, I have an account, but I don't use it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, I mean, I don't, you know, I just don't feel like being surveilled. So, and people in Nubia were like, haha. <laughs> right, right. We went on. That was that day. What was it? Yeah. It was that day, wasn't it? Yeah. Yep. Haha. All right. Uh, I love you so much. Love you too. Uh, oh, love everybody. Everyone have a great weekend. We'll see you, uh, those of you in Nubia, uh, Office Hours Monday. On Indigenous People's Day. We'll see you yeah. Office Hours. We'll have a good conversation. Can't wait. All right. Love you.